The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, have you ever longed for a break? Any kind of respite at all from the responsibility of being the single greatest mind from Belgium to Istanbul? Have you ever thought you had found your 13 hours of peace from the wickedness of man on the decadent tracks of a rolling five-star hotel, and yet people just won't stop dying in untoward ways in the train car next to you? Have you ever spoken out loud to a photograph of a mysterious woman in yearning, just to hear the sound of your own voice, hoping that her printed, fading visage would somehow provide the answers to the moral dilemmas that plague your very soul in a world full of broken and imbalanced harmony? Well, let's find out. Because today we are traveling through the glorious 65mm landscape of Kenneth Branagh's 2017 film adaptation of the Agatha Christie classic, Murder on the Orient Express. So sit back, boil some symmetrical eggs, and ponder the grey morality of vengeful manslaughter as we track our way through the opulent sights of this homicide-ruined vacation. Brought to you by Putting the ham in ham and cheese narcissism. Old Testament justice. The abuse of figurative language. The LED landscape of 3,000 screens. The old Lindbergh baby cop-out. And the double-down adage of, there are good detectives, there are bad detectives. And then there is Hercule Perrault. And of course, our safe word today is air travel. Anything to add, Benji? My name is not Benji, it is Benjamin. I do not go woof woof like the doggy. You're like channeling some Arnold Schwarzenegger there. (laughs) Hercule Poirot, Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger in Murder on the Orient Express. You tell your lies, you bitch. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy... Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Hunter! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. London, you're looking particularly Belgian today. How are we? Sure. I'm not Belgian. I actually did live in Belgium for a little while, though. See, so it's, there's that. It, it stayed just with seeped you. seeped in there. Yeah, just yeah. it's the Belgian that sticks, you know. The one thing I remember, I was a kid when I lived in Belgium. and Weren't we all? I remember it was hard to find apples for some reason in the area that I was living. I don't know why, and I don't know... If we tried that hard or what, I'd have to look into the apple scarcity of Belgium in the 90s, if that was actually a thing. But at one point, I remember there was this peeled potato that had been sliced like an apple on my plate. And I got so excited thinking that I was about to finally bite into a crisp apple, which I had not had in what felt like weeks and months, which in five-year-old mindset was just an eternity and I bite into a potato and I have never forgiven that potato. It still haunts my soul to this day, clearly, since it's still on my mind. See, I don't even like apples all that much and I really dig potatoes. So I think Belgium, that's the place I need to be going. 
Yeah. Even though Douglas Adam told us it's the absolute worst curse word of all time. Belgium or potato? Belgium. Okay. Why is Belgium the worst curse word of all time? Because it is. One cannot argue with the absurdist reasoning of it's Douglas Adams. Yeah, it's it's something from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but the main guy is at some party on another planet and just says Belgium, and everyone freaks the fuck out because he said the most deplorable curse word of all time, which on this planet is Belgium. That's Douglas Adams, folks. That's... How he do. That's, uh, yes. It's a mystery, we might say. Yes. But that is not the mystery that we are trying to uh, uh, unravel today. We're actually not trying to unravel any mystery at all. We're watching a mystery. We're traveling through that mystery. Ah. Yes, we we have boarded that train Ah, and we are traveling ah, with it. Setting out the station, you might say. Abusing those metaphors. Yes. That are barely metaphors. (laughs) Abusing that figurative language. Today on Murder on the Orient Express from 2017, directed by and starring that fantastic Northern Irish actor. I mean, most people from Northern Ireland would want me to make that distinction, I think. Northern Irish actor Kenneth Branagh, written by Michael Green, starring every actor ever. Yeah, it's quite a list. It's a, There are people in this thing. It's like every British actor that was not in a Harry Potter film gets put <laughs> into this one. <laughs> and then a couple of non-British ones. Was Judi Dench not in a Harry Potter film? I don't think she was. Oh, that's true. No, she was not there. She was in, in zero of the Harry Potter films. Wow. Yeah, and huh. Daisy Ridley was not in any Harry Potter because she wasn't quite around yet when those were... Mm being made. Yeah, that's pre-Star Wars for her. Was Derek Jacobi not in a Harry Potter film? I don't think he was either. Okay. But Kenneth Branagh was. He was, He yeah. was, yeah. Uh, what's his face? Gilderoy Gil- Lockhart. That's it, yeah. It's Which th- was a part that was specifically written by J.K. Rowling with Kenneth Branagh in mind. So I've heard. Apparently she just yeah. said, what? I need, a, I need to write someone who's a pompous asshole. Hey, Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Well, just a bit of a ham and very full of himself, which is why I was very surprised when in prep for this, I watched a whole bunch of making ofs, behind the scenes stuff, as well as watched the director's and screenwriter's commentary to this film, expecting a complete ham show. I was just expecting a (laughs) ham and cheese sandwich heated up and... Cut into little slices for me and mm-hmm. just force fed down my throat. See, the abuse of figurative language we're committing to it today. <laughs> and he was not at all a ostentatious fellow. He was quite down to earth. Mm-hmm. He was very complimentary of everybody else. He made one joke about himself and his vanity, but the commentary itself was not at all vain. And I'm like, I know nothing. I thought I knew (laughs) Kenneth Branagh, and I apparently don't. In real life, he keeps it very low-key, but then when he's on screen, it explodes forward. That happens a lot with actors, I find. The actors who are the most quiet in real life always seem to be the ones who are the most loud and boisterous on screen, and vice versa, oddly enough. So yeah, Kenneth Branagh, he is going to humbly (laughs) work his way through this film as the director and ostentatiously work his way through this film as the lead star, Hercule Poirot. And speak in an accent that is 
somewhat more understandable than the accent he used in Tenet. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's really endearing. Everything about this character is endearing, right. but we'll get to that. London, First. let's get into, yes, lightning summary, London. What is this movie all about? Okay, so this movie is an adaptation of an Agatha Christie novel of the same name, which we will get to here in a second shortly, because I know Benji read that novel in anticipation for this, and we have some notes. But first, lightning summary is that this is going to be an adaptation of that novel about really just a Belgian version of Sherlock Holmes. Agatha Christie has admitted that's where the inspiration for Hercule Poirot came from was Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, initially intended only to be in one novel and then became this series. So this is one of the Hercule Poirot books. And it'll tell the tale of him and his mustache (laughs) and how he just desperately wants a vacation from solving horrendous crimes that reveal to him the base vileness of humanity. And he is traveling on the famed Orient Express from Istanbul after solving a crime in Jerusalem, and he's traveling back west to solve another crime. And while on board this train, he's gonna have to solve another goddamn crime. (laughs) It's not just that he's on his way to solve another crime and then in the midst of going to that crime has to solve one crime. He was hoping to have to not solve any crimes and then got pulled away to solve one crime and then on the way to go to that crime that he has to solve, he has to solve another crime. It's it's inception levels of crime solving. So that is the lightning summary of this film. So a little history here. We're talking about that you keep hearing us talk about this guy, Hercule Perrault or however one might pronounce his name. London probably does a little bit better than I can. I do everything better than you can. Hercule Poirot, a character created by British mystery writer Agatha Christie. He first appeared in a novel in 1920 called The Mysterious Affairs at Styles, And his last appearance in novel form was in 1975 in a novel called Curtain that Agatha Christie wrote a year before her death. And when she killed off this character... After he'd been in 33 novels, 55 short stories, two plays, he was such a famous character that the New York Times published an obituary for the fictional character when he was killed off. So, as we talked about in our Southland Tales episode, the New York Times never said that God is dead, but they did say that Hercule Poirot is dead. So basically what we have to do is offer a correction on the Southland Tales episode, because if you accept Hercule Poirot as God, the New York Times did in fact say that God was dead. And it was in the guise of a very meticulous OCD Belgian detective with a fantastic moustache. One thing that is fun, though, that I found as a little just trivia tidbit is that although Agatha Christie's novel here, Murder on the Orient Express, is indeed titled that, came out in January of 1934, It turns out that there was a novel that had come out in America in 1932 that had been published. Well, I mean, its title was The Stromble Train. Sure. But it had been published in the United States as Orient Express. And so when Agatha Christie's book, Murder on the Orient Express, came out two years later, its title had to be changed in the U.S. as well. So The Callous Coach is what it was initially published the, under in the U.S. Isn't that Calais? Yes, probably. The Calais Coach. Oh, look at me correcting your French. Holy shit. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> so published as The Calais Coach. Who wrote that? What, The Calais Coach? Yeah. 
No, that's what Murder on the Orient Express was published under in the U.S. Oh, okay. So Agatha Christie. <laughs> well, who wrote the thing that confused the title? Motherfucking Graham Greene. Graham Greene comes up again. Yes, he because we just and... brought him up in Willy Wonka well, yeah. and the Chocolate Factory. Weird. Yeah. And he wrote the short story that is mentioned in Donnie Darko. Oh, that's true. Whoa. Yeah. Oh. He's just sneaking his way in little here. sneaky Graham Greene. That's sneaky English little motherfucker. Graham Greene is back. Yeah. All right. So there we go. But yes, tell us about the actual Murder on the York Express slash the Calais Coach <laughs> as a novel. Well, yes. That novel, as you mentioned, was published in 1934. And there wouldn't be any film adaptations of that, unless you count a made-for-television version in Germany in 1955, and we do not count that because I couldn't find a good copy of it to see what it was like, so yeah. So a soft count. Yes, the big version of this film came out in 1974, much like this movie was a star-studded cast. You had like Sean Connery in there as the doctor, you had... Lauren Bacall, you had Ingrid Bergman, you just everyone was in this. It was being uh, the title character, or not title character, but Hercule himself was being played by Albert Finney. And apparently it was the only time that Agatha Christie ever saw Hercule Perot on screen and said, yeah, okay, that works. Apparently there, there had been prior film attempts at, you know, Perot stories, and she often just did not like them and didn't often give the rights out to her films. But this one, she says, yeah, I think they got it. The mustache isn't big enough, but yeah, I think they got it. That seriously was a criticism yep. that she had, that she didn't think Albert Finney's mustache was big enough. Oh, yeah, I have a note on that later when we get to <laughs> Kenneth Branagh's I was going to say, app apparently Kenneth Branagh got that memo and said, oh, well, we can't have the mustache being lackluster. No siree. Now, after this 1974 version, there actually were two made-for-TV versions for English-speaking audiences. The first was in 2001, a made-for-TV version starring Alfred Molina as Perot that was set in modern times. I watched a little bit of this. It is bad. <laughs> I, Whoa, I don't, I don't know. We, we don't, I don't like... We never like to do that, to just say a movie well, is I bad. I don't. You, you say you don't like to, but yeah. you do. Okay. I'll, here's what I'll say. Alfred Molina is... Probably one of the most charismatic actors out there. I mean, fantastic performer, lights at the screen. I saw this, I'm like, why Why are you so boring, Alfred Merlina? He just acts very smug uh, throughout a lot of it, which, I mean, having read the book now and listened to an audio book of it, I have to say, yeah, that's kind of accurate to book Poirot, but what are you going to do? And then in 2010, ITV, the British network, adapted it for its long-running Agatha Christie's Poirot series. Uh, David Suchet, I believe is how you say is that guy's name. Sure. Yeah, okay. David Suchet or Suchet. You never know. Let us know on the Twitter and the Instagrams, folks, and the Reddit. Tell me which way to pronounce it. I'm happy to hear. But he was playing the title role as he had been like, since 1989. Weird aspect of that is that it leans really heavily into Poirot being Roman Catholic, and that's kind of the driving force behind his moral dilemma on the train and that's not really a thing in the books so weird very young jessica chastain in that though uh she pops up oh. was, yeah yeah she is uh, she plays the role that daisy ridley plays in this movie all right then yeah and then finally in 2017 we have this film directed by and starring kenneth branagh a little background who is kenny bran you might ask well by god i'll tell you who the hell kenny b kenny b yeah <laughs> Directed and starring Kenny B. 
Uh, Kenneth Branagh, he, like I said, he's an actor originally from Northern Ireland, though he moved to England in when he was nine years old. His family wanted to get out of Northern Ireland because of the Troubles. Rough time in Northern Irish history, neither here nor there. He got into theater and came up to the ranks in Shakespearean theater in England. You know, they're kind of known for their Shakespearean theater, you know, the English. It's kind of a big deal. And he rose, uh, gained some fame through that, and then he started directing films. And he began making some very well-renowned adaptations of Shakespeare. In 1989, he made a version of Henry V, which was just pretty wild because it was showing war as being a very ugly and nasty thing. And then in 93, he makes Much Ado About Nothing, and it was a big deal because it was a star-studded cast. You had Denzel Washington and then Michael Keaton, super young Kate Beckinsale. I think it was her very first movie. And also Keanu Reeves was there, and he was trying. I was going to say, I love both Keanu Reeves and Michael Keaton. I don't think those would be my first go-tos to cast in a Shakespearean comedy. <laughs> Michael Keaton in that movie, he's playing a character called Dogberry, who is a deliberately just insane character, whereas Keanu Reeves is playing Don John, who is the villainous brother to Denzel Washington, but whatever. Then in 1996, Kenneth Broadaw made what many people, myself included, considered to be the definitive version of Hamlet, wherein he filmed every word that Shakespeare wrote for that play. Any other adaptation you see of Hamlet, they're cutting something. Kenneth Branagh did not, which is why the movie is over four hours long, and he also filmed all of it in 70mm, and God, it's just a gorgeous movie. Then after Hamlet, his choices in film got a little weird. He, he played the villain in Wild Wild West. <laughs> he made some choices with that performance, so I'll, I'll say that much. He did a film version of Love Labor's Lost, which is not one of Shakespeare's better comedies. Cut a lot of the dialogue, replaced it with Cole Porter songs. It was strange. No one really liked it too much. He did a version of As You Like It that was set in feudal Japan and starred zero Asian actors. Yikes. A little weird. But then things kind of turned around from in 2011 when he directed this movie about Norse mythology called Thor, an early movie in this new cinematic universe that people were trying out. Disney had him direct a live-action version of Cinderella. He started appearing in Christopher Nolan movies like Dunkirk, which is awesome, and also Tenet, where he... he uh, I still don't know what the hell happened in Tenet. I've seen it like twice now. And at any rate, that is kind of Kenneth Branagh's career leading up to this. He's known for just developing and creating new versions of classic you know, works of literature and you know, works of uh, you know, plays and what have you. And a big criticism of him, not necessarily his directing, people really like his visual style, but they say that as an actor, he's a little over the top, a little too emotional in some scenes. That's the, like the main criticism of his version of Hamlet, as he, he plays Hamlet a little bit too, like, just, rah, 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 like, kind of all over the place. And a lot of fans of the book, as I found out, did not care for his portrayal of Hercule Poirot because they felt he made Hercule a little bit too emotional. Book Perot is a, a lot more cool and calm and doesn't let himself get out of hand. But um, not the movie version. No, sir, not this. Perot in this movie, he does not hold back. Side note, it pains me that you went through all of those things and you did not mention Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. Because <laughs> that is the most important of all of them, and I mean that. Movies. I, trippy as... Whoa. I was so, trying to keep it those like those early films. I was trying to keep it to the Shakespearean adaptations for theming, but 
important. You but make a theming point. in terms of once again liking to adapt some sort of former piece of literature and really put a new spin, a new life on it. This is true. This is true. Now, the movie, like I said, we said that Kenneth Branagh is directing and starring in this. He did not write it, however. The movie was written by Michael Green, who's written some yeah. movies that London and I have enjoyed. Blade Runner 2049. Also, Logan and Alien Covenant. Yes. And he was in the commentary. It was very interesting to listen to him and Kenneth Branagh's process. They both definitely tried very hard to keep a lot of the nuances and details from Agatha Christie's work and oeuvre overall, not just this book, but bringing in little stuff. So we will look at that through. Yes, as I found having dived into many uh, wikis and plot summaries of other Agatha Christie Poirot novels, I have to say Michael Green did his goddamn homework. So real quick, best thing, worst thing, or... All right, let's see here. But best thing about this movie, I'd say this is a, the best thing for me having, you know, gone to the book myself, is that this is a great uh, example of how to adapt a work of literature and really understand the differences in the mediums of film and and the, the written word. So I like that the most about it, I'd say. Your best thing. The production design and the texture yes. on this film is incredible. You know, that kind of relates to my worst thing about this movie. Not that the production design and texture and what have you is, is bad. It's good. It's really goddamn good. It's so good, in fact, that if you are not watching this movie on a gigantic screen, you're missing out. And that just occurred to me more and more as I rewatched this film on my computer while I was taking notes. I'm like, ah, man, this is no good. This was all filmed in 70 millimeter, much like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet was. And we both saw this in theaters. I think we saw this together in theaters when it was first out. Uh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, seeing movies with you in a theater is the best way to hang out with you because it's dark and I don't have to look at you, nor do I have to hear you. It's really the best of both worlds. I'll allow it. <laughs> but it's great to see it on the big screen and not see it on the big screen. It's, it's, it's not as glamorous and opulent as it should be. So... Yeah, I guess that's the worst thing about this movie for me, which isn't really the movie's fault, just a fault of that you might watch this on a small screen and miss out on so much. My worst thing is that the Lindbergh baby ripoff is a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get to that. We will get to the Lindbergh baby ripoff. <laughs> I just don't know new... how to feel about that. I have conflicting feelings, but that's not this movie's fault. That's in the novels. That's, so. No, that's now my alternate title for this movie. Murder on the Orient Express, a.k.a. the Limber Baby Ripoff. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I don't know. <laughs> Seems like exploitational in a strange way or just like a little too cute at the same time. I don't know. So we'll get there. But to begin, the film begins. Let's start at a wall. The Wailing Wall in 1934. I found this very interesting. The movie's opening, like, its text on the screen to establish where we, when and where we are is not a city or place, but just The Wailing Wall, 1934, which places us, The Wailing Wall is in Jerusalem. It's a very holy site for members of the Jewish faith. And 1934 is because that's the year the book was published. The book is actually not very big on dates and years. Most of the Paro stories don't really worry about what year it is, but we got that here just for the sake of accuracy, I imagine. And yeah, we're in Jerusalem as opposed to Syria, which is where the novel itself starts. Yeah. To be fair, it's a, an important area for a lot of different faiths, not yes. just the Jewish faith, but 
Yes, we start in this area. This was actually filmed in Malta, as I learned from the commentary. Mm -hmm. And this wall was built by taking these giant panels and placing them in front of an existing wall to provide that back structure. And they brought in a lot of those warm colors to really evoke the heat of the Middle East. And... It is, once again, really important to note that this is a 65 millimeter film. The details that that allows Mm -hmm. us to get are incredible. So the thing, we've talked about it before, but we'll say it again here or talk about on other episodes, that, yeah, when you bring that film stock up from 35 millimeter to 65, as it did on Tron, (laughs) it's going (laughs) to do it here too, that it allows you to just pack so much more visual micro detail into every single frame. It's going to give it this gorgeous texture. And not very many films are shot in 65 millimeter. And certainly not many in 2017 are shot in 65 millimeter. I think that they actually had to put together a developing place in Britain to process their 65 millimeter film because they didn't currently have one. Ah. Wow. So that's how rare the 65 millimeter stuff is nowadays. It's very expensive. The cameras are gigantic. Mm. We will be talking about the filming process on this movie. But to start, we'll also say that there were so many cameras on this movie. (laughs) So many. For such a small, tight space for most of the movie, there are so many cameras going at once at any given time. And it's incredible. Yeah. The production budget on this is just both yeah. fantastic, fascinating, and sickening at the same time. Something I've always wanted to point out with 65 millimeter, 70 millimeter, you hear us use those terms interchangeably, 70 millimeter, 65 millimeter. I think it's important to note, 65 millimeter is the format that the film is captured on. The image is captured on 65 millimeter. When it's then put out into distribution and exhibited, it's on 70 millimeter. The extra five millimeters of the film frame is taken up by the information that contains the soundtrack. That's how it's often worked in the past. That might be different nowadays with digital soundtrack mm-hmm. methods or what have you. But if you ever hear us say 65 millimeter and then 70 millimeter, just keep that in mind. 65 millimeter is the capture format. 70 millimeter is the exhibition format. Yeah, legit. Yeah. So we also details. have what we do uh, yeah, details. They're important, right? The deep dive. <laughs> now, it's also important here for Kenneth Branagh and Michael Green to have set this opening in Jerusalem as this very Old Testament evoking feel that mm. we are going to set up Perot's world here as a world of black and white, good and bad, right and wrong morality structures that's a very old testament way of thinking and he's gonna board that train in a little bit he's gonna take a little journey and it's gonna make him question his hard-boiled philosophy of there is right there's wrong and there's nothing in between (sighs) themes themes Themes. we will get to those themes he will not have egg on his face on that hey speaking of eggs you see what i did there (laughs) unfortunately i do (laughs) our our opening bit of business is this little kid rushing over somewhere with eggs bringing some boiled eggs to someone who we don't we see the back of their head getting a little mustache trimmed just eggs are brought for him like no 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 sends them away they come back and we meet urkel piro kenneth brana and we see that goddamn mustache yeah, Holy the glory itself. Shit. This is wow. Okay. So 
I mean, we, I love that first, like, we, we get so much of Perot at once here because we get those eggs brought in, and he's using a tiny little measuring stick to make sure the eggs are the exact same size. This is not something that's in the novel itself, but in other Perot novels by Agatha Christie, Perot really is obsessed with eggs being the exact same size. In a novel, Peril at Inn's House, and then another short story called The Disappearance of Mr. Devenheim, he is, like, upset and baffled that chickens do not lay eggs the same size all the time. Yeah, it's a torture. It is a small <laughs> daily torture <laughs> that he must face and endure. Also, apparently, Agatha Christie wrote a biography for Hercule Poirot in the Sunday Gazette in which she listed some of his little quirks. And she specifically mentions in that list that he has this egg quirk, that it is a constant struggle. Michael that's Green because did his our homework. little buddy, Hercule Poirot, is OCD. <laughs> he cannot handle imbalances in the universe. And thus... This is what compels him to solve crimes, you see, is because a crime is an anomaly. It is an imbalance in the universe. Are we sure that OCD is the correct term for that? He's, uh, it's not the correct term for that, but he's okay. also OCD. Okay, well, so. <laughs> fair enough. And what else, the, 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 what's throwing off this world that is imbalancing this world is this mustache that is just the weight of the world is on this glorious stash. Yeah, and apparently in the books, it is repeated again and again, this language of the mustache or the moustache, as I feel compelled to call it, because it is <laughs> not just a mustache, it is a moustache. <laughs> there and you reach a new level and you get to moustache. It is, because it is its own character. <laughs> it is constantly described as magnificent and majestic and the crowning thing on his face. Kenneth Branagh, or Kenny B in the commentary, <laughs> describes it as his facial furniture, which I is a great <laughs> phrase, so I had to bring it up. And the, this had to be showcased, because as we already mentioned, Agatha Christie, as much as she did or didn't like various adaptations of Perot's stories, no one had ever gotten the mustache right. It was never big enough. It was never bold enough. It was never its own entity enough. And so the hair and makeup designer, Carol Hemming, spent almost six months in the planning, development, Jesus. building, and execution. Did she grow of it this herself? Mustache. Why six I mean, months? She had she was doing other things as well. Okay, it wasn't that right. this was like the one task that she had was to <laughs> micro focus on this mustache and she locked herself away in some sort of room for six months and then finally came out and was like, I, by God, I have it. <laughs> the but, angel sang out, Ah mustache. Ah. Yeah, it was a process though, I guess. They <laughs> tried some different stuff. And what they ended up with was this mustache, which has not just one but two curls on either side. It is a double wave and it's amazing. And it takes up his entire face. It wraps around. It is a presence. And we also get the camera work trying real hard to establish this facial furniture because we get a straight on shot of Pierrot's face and then it cuts immediately to a direct profile shot. And the mustache is what is in the very center of this frame both times. So we're like, this is the front view. This is the side view. It's like one of those jail headshots, like your mugshot, where it's like, we got to get all angles so that we can identify it. 
compared this mustache to the mustache that David Suchet was using in the Agatha, the ITV Agatha Christie TV shows, and that the television mustache is no, almost non-existent when you compare it to this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, that is what we will say about the moustache. moustache. Not enough can ever be said, but it is yeah. there. It is on his face. There's a moustache and there's a moustache. And this this bad boy is a moustache. There's also a crime afoot. Oh, yeah. The moustache and its owner have to go solve a quick crime in Jerusalem because a sacred artifact has been stolen and the people are getting rowdy. But... Poirot, he he's a sharp fella, and he figures out, oh, well, I know who stole this thing. It's this, you know, this asshole constable of the police, and he's worried that people are, it's too peaceful. He had to create some trouble, and yeah, he took it. Hey, just search his office like I told you to. Yeah, did you find the thing? Yeah, you found the thing. Okay, lock this guy up, and that's that's how he do. Yeah, Poirot solves the case very quickly, and he does it showing a surprising quirkiness of ingenuity and thinking 12 steps ahead because he will stick his cane at the very beginning in a small hole in the wall. And you're left thinking, wait, why? Why would you do that? What purpose? What, you weirdo? But then it turns out there was a purpose. He just thinks so far ahead of us, you see. He can see the entire thing as it's going to play out. And that cane catches his culprit right in the face bones as he runs into it and flips over and it helps stop him. So basically, open establishing case just there to demonstrate Perot might be the greatest detective in all the lands. He came by that title honest. The policeman asked him, how do you do it? I mean, how did you know what was going to happen? And he says, I have the disadvantage or the curse of seeing the world exactly as it should be. And when it is not... I see it like the nose in front of my face. It is very distressful, but also good for the solving of crimes. Okay, well, we I'm going to take you to the boat. No, 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 no. We must never meet again. I love, I love how much he just tells this guy to fuck off. Like, no, 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 no. We must never meet again. Straighten your tie. Yeah, there's, there's no purpose for us <laughs> to ever see each other again. We're not I friends. Really don't uh, want to be here. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is where we get introduced to the soulful side of Peter. The weight of the world is upon him. The crushing, crippling imbalance of the world full of crimes and horrendous acts. And he just wants a vacation. He, he wants... just wants a rest for his very soul. His soul demands it. It cries for it. <laughs> But <laughs> but no, he wants no. to have too much time in his hands and stare at paintings. But no, no, sir. He's in Jerusalem at, when he says this. Then he gets on the boat where he runs into Daisy Ridley's character, Mary, Mary, and then the doctor, played by Leslie Odom Jr. He shows up, and I'm watching like half this movie, and then... Somebody else comes in. He's like, oh, Leslie Odom Jr. And I'm like, what? Where? <laughs> they're like, right there. And I was like, no. And I was like, just stop for a second. I had to pause it. And they're like, oh, my God, that mustache. So Leslie Odom Jr. is also going to have a mustache in this. And it's not a mustache. No, it is no, a mustache. It's just a mustache. And it is not doing his face any favors. You know, I don't think we can even call this a mustache. It's just a stash. It is just a stash. Yeah, yeah. it's just... Yeah, I don't know what you call this design, but it is, it's not good is what it is because it changes the entire structure of his face because I was like, nah, like, that can't be Leslie Odom Jr. because Leslie Odom Jr. is a super attractive man and all, all I see is stash when I look at this. <laughs> it kind of reminded me, 
almost exactly of the fact that I saw I, Tanya maybe two and a half times before I realized that one of the main dudes in that is Sebastian Stan. And I did not recognize him. Oh, yeah. For like that's three right. viewings because he has this mustache <laughs> <laughs> that just takes over his face. And that's all I saw. Like, I did not know that that was Sebastian Stan in I, Tanya, And I did not know that this was Leslie Odom Jr. So like mustaches, man. For a second there, I thought you were going to say, and I did not realize that that was Margo Robbie. What the hell? Out of nowhere. Caught me off guard. Yeah, her mustache was just so distracting. <laughs> but just I think so there's intense. like, so it's a almost a joke in crime lit, right? That somehow somebody puts on a fake mustache to <laughs> hide somewhere or to disguise themselves. But apparently that shit works. I, <laughs> so, apparently, man. It's, it's like, like, yeah, it changes the entire face structure. Superman like, and Clark Jesus. Kent with the glasses. You know, Superman could just put on a fake mustache and he's off and running. We also, uh, when Daisy Ridley's character, uh, Mary Debenaugh, meets Hercule, she recognizes him. Are you Hercules Perot? Not Hercules, Hercule. I do not slay the lion. Which is funny, because Agatha Christie put together a series of short stories called The Labors of Hercule, where it's just 12 short stories that are all named after the labors of Hercules. So, he kind of does. It's kind of like Hercules. Just yeah, a little sure. bit, just a bit there, you know, and she's amazed like, whoa, how'd you know I was going to Istanbul? He's like, your, your boarding pass says so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's of an obvious one there, but yeah, they're going to arrive in Istanbul and we're going to have this really beautiful, lovely scene of Pierrot getting really excited over bread. He's just so into bread. This is actually something I enjoy a lot more about the movie versus the book. In the movie, we get to see Poirot enjoying things. We get to see him, like, getting excited about something. Book Poirot doesn't really ever seem to do that. Unless I'm missing something, he doesn't really seem to care too much. He comes up as much more smug in the book than he does in the movie. Here, yes, he is just so happy about these baked breads that he's seen in Istanbul. The entire, as he says, the entire world demands destruction, but here perfection is baked to order every day. I'm like, oh, you're just so happy. Yeah. Yeah. This is also where we meet Monsieur Bouc. The best character. So he comes just bursting in, in a flourish with this prostitute on his arm. He's having a grand old time. Basically every sentence out of his mouth is just going to be this wondrous gold of hedonism and frivolity. He's pretty much every Oscar Wilde character ethos wrapped into a single person and just having a grand old time with it. And the prostitute that he has with him is delighted that him and Pierrot are friends. And Pierrot is equally as delighted and excited to see his his friend, his hedonist friend. And there's this whole little great exchange where Bach tries to introduce the prostitute. And he's like, this is, and Perot's like, a prostitute. And she's like, I am, you know? And everyone's like, it's really kind of wonderfully sex positive. Like nobody's judging this chick for being a prostitute, which I respect. Hey, like we always say, sex workers' rights. And I'm sure Perot says the same thing. Yeah, because it seems like for him, he does not look down on class. He just looks down on people who do good and bad actions. And being of certain professions or certain economic brackets are 
not part of a morality stance for him, which right is on. great. That's yeah, it's beautiful. And so that's yeah, that's chill, uh, especially since we have this amazing little exchange where Bach explains that he is friends with Hercule because. I never ask him about his cases because I don't care. And he never judges me for being a terrible person. <laughs> indeed and you are. I was like, indeed you are. <laughs> right? and, uh, but he's excited about it. So it's like, it's a different kind of terrible, I suppose. When Perot invites him, like, you must join me for the drink. And he says, no, no, I can't. I have to head off on the Orient Express. My uncle pays me lavishly to be on the boats and trains that he owns and keep me away. There's an art to nepotism, my friend. And you yeah. are its Michelin. I'm like, I'd love that book just openly admits to nepotism. Most people who are who benefit from nepotism don't want to admit it. Do not want to. They never want to say so. Book, no, man. He's just like, yes, I benefit from nepotism and I make nepotism my bitch. That's how I do. Which yeah, is awesome. he's just a dandy fuckboy and I love him. I think that his reference to his uncle, it might be a sly reference to the this character in the book in the book book is a much older man he's i think meant mm-hmm. to be a little older than Poirot, and is he's just a french guy and it actually is infuriating because i listened to the audiobook to this and because book is always in the same scenes as Poirot, you're hearing the narrator do his accent for Poirot and then do a slightly different french accent for book and it's just two french accents over and over again it's Kind of Technically, one should be a Belgian one. One should be. Okay, fair enough. So we are having this delighted little dalliance and exchange when another dour individual comes up and it's like, well, this dude is not smiling. He's in a suit. Uh-huh. Clearly, you must be from the British consulate is what is deduced by everyone involved. Are and you also a prostitute? <laughs> the guy acknowledges like, yeah, I have a case for you and Perot's like, you do not need to tell me. I know what it is because I'm the greatest detective. And Oh, okay. Yeah. That's two so or two. You got him. Yeah. He yeah, realizes that his rest has been cut short. And he, he needs... must go back west. And mm-hmm. he needs passage on this train. And his friend Book is like, you know what? I might not be good for much, but I can get you free passage on my train in the dead of winter. Oh, goddamn. Book is the best. Yeah. So... Hence the plot begins, and we go from having these really lavish, wide open, what many a person might call the 65 millimeter landscapes, to what's going to be a very condensed space for a very long time. And both Brana and Green did talk about in the commentary how they really did want to provide some of that old school, old Hollywood sprawling 65 millimeter landscape spreads before we get into this very claustrophobic space, especially if you're going to use that 65 mil camera. <laughs> like, get some gorgeous shots. Yes, and they get one gigantic gorgeous shot next when they arrive at the train station and book is making sure that perot can get a seat on the orient express we just walk around the train yard for a little while moving around as we're trying to rearrange things and see some people and get onto that train and it's just a minute long wonder like a long continuous tracking shot and you sent me some of the behind the scenes uh, videos on this and they have all of these 65 millimeter cameras on cranes just flying around the set tracking Kenneth Branagh as he's moving around, and it's 
fucking gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous. We're introducing a lot of people just in the peripheral very quickly, what is going to be our ensemble cast, and getting a sense of who is important based on how they move within the frame, and also because all of these guys' very recognizable faces <laughs> on the acting roster, so you're like, that's a face I know. Bet that he's important. <laughs> so it's a combination, except for one dude that I'm not as familiar with as an actor, as a sort of pre-established in what I've been exposed to, who plays the ballet oh, dancer slash count, count either Drenny, of those yeah. two. Yeah. But you know they're important because we've got <laughs> this fellow who's leaned up against a bar in a white tailored suit jacket, perfectly pristine. His hair is slicked back and he's posed like he's ready for his Vogue, Gucci, whatever contract spread. And a camera goes off. He's just posed there and that flash bulb bursts into light and he loses his shit. He starts throwing down and it's like, the fuck? This guy's just like assaulting this dude in the middle of the train station. Everybody doesn't quite know how to react. Even Perreault sort of stands up for a second like he's going to intervene but doesn't know how. And then out of the frame comes this other just weird otherworldly presence <laughs> of this chick who's in a black veil and glamored up and she slowly walks in and walks over and puts her hand on the shoulder of this dude that's just going berserk and he immediately calms and turns to her and they embrace in this old hollywood style one guy's gonna start to raise his camera again the other dude clocks his eyebrow up at him or like he drops his camera, like, it shatters, because that's enough. It, yeah. This dude's insane assault has <laughs> instilled the fear into all of these paparazzi. Fuck it, I'll buy another like, camera. I just don't want to have my ass kicked by this crazy person at the bar. Yeah, like, okay, we've got some anger management issues. We've got some potentially elite rich motherfuckers that can get away with these anger management issues. And we have this weird girl who seems to be some sort of soothing balm for this, like, hulked out dude. It's weird. <laughs> it is super weird. It's like she's a soothing drug of some sort for she him. She's human barbital, basically. Ah, uh, saturated, you might say. She's the barbital Barbie. It's actually weird. Now that I think about it, you're right that this character introduction is really, it's the longest one that we get. And I think it might have something to do with the fact that every other character introduction are characters played by actors that we already know very well. We see... Johnny Depp, we see Willem Dafoe, we see Penelope Cruz, we see Judy Dench show up, and they just show up, and it's a quick shot of them. But then mm -hmm. these two, we don't know really these actors. They don't bring any you know star power or star baggage with them. So that actually makes sense that we might spend a little bit more time with them and give them something a bit more distinct. I think we're also setting up an early red herring because this guy looks like he might oh. stab a bitch on a train. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since right before then, Johnny Depp, whose character will be the murder victim in this, is sitting in that bar with him. And he mm. does seem to notice both Pierrot and this other guy at the bar. And so we're establishing a little bit that Depp might have a connection to this dude who's about to lose his shit. And he might be suspect number one, because if he will beat a guy nearly to death for taking his picture in a bar... What is he going to do to somebody he clearly 
feels he's been wronged by uh-huh. in some capacity. Yes. So, yeah, we have these little setups, this gorgeous tracking shot as we get on the train. This train and the sets, oh, man, the way that these things were built, so, so gorgeous. I was the most shocked by the behind-the-scenes footage that you sent me that so much of this was real. I thought for sure that mm-hmm. the, a lot of the train station was probably fake or CGI or that a lot of the train was CGI. No, a lot more of this was real than I thought was going to be real. Yeah, a lot of this is practical, and the things that are effects are generally there to augment what's practically there or to stitch together two practical elements. And a great example of that is going to be this train station, which they did build on a soundstage, and it is gorgeous. They built a replica train that is wow. full-sized. God they damn. had a track that was a couple miles long that it could roll around on if it needed to. But most of the time it looked like it was certain cars were put on hydraulics on the track to sway and move about in that train motion. Some of the shots they did manage to get this train delivered to different locations to get certain shots Good on God. an exterior level. Who do but you then, call for that? Who is the train delivery service? That you, Does FedEx have some sort of like extra fee you can pay for train delivery? Is it different for steam versus diesel? Yeah, I think the production designer had a lot to do with that organization of the delivery, but I'm not actually 100% sure Sure. on the details of organizing that delivery. The majority of the use of the train set was outside of London. They had some things built, and one of the things that they had built was, okay, so this hydraulic set and the rails and the train. And then they had over 3,000 LED screens lining either side of the train. And they sent their camera crews to Switzerland and New Zealand to get a bunch of moving shots from every angle so that they could do a 360 composite of actual moving footage that they then screened on these LED screens as it kind of like motioned by them while the hydraulics on the train was happening. And that is how we are getting those exterior shots. And they did try two different tests where they went and they brought a train to the physical location and they shot somebody on the train with it actually like having an outdoor sort of visage going by. Mm -hmm. And then they did this LED, almost like rotoscoping on steroids (laughs) effect. And... (laughs) Brought it to the execs at 20th Century Fox and said, like, okay, can you pick out which one is which? We're not going to tell you which one is which. And not a single person in the room could tell the difference or pick which one was which. (laughs) So that is just how amazingly seamless this is. And a lot of the actors, when interviewed, said that it was a really great immersive experience because you're sitting on this train, it is moving, and outside, as far as they can see in their peripheral vision, is this landscape that is moving by them on the screen, on these gorgeous LED screens that just stretched the width and then some of the train. So It sounds a lot like that uh, that whole light stage thing that you hear about that they're doing with the Mandalorian, that Star Wars show where they have just the gigantic surrounding LED screen or, or something, which it yeah, sounds like so a version LED of that. Is game changer, but it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it is the way that this thing was shot and the production design and the way things were built and the attention that was paid to the details is just incredible. And we can kind of see that getting set up here. But I think there's a lot of places in which 
things look so natural that it's taken for granted. Like this outside stuff, the amount of work that it took to get those exterior rotoscoping shots is insane, but most people are not gonna notice it. Or some things look so gorgeous that you're like, well, clearly these are mats or it's CGI. Mm -hmm. Things like the gorgeous turquoise water that's behind Perot at the in the opening shot when oh, he's talking yeah, to the yeah. detective. And you're like, well, that looks like a matte painting. No, Malta was just that blue. And since they had <laughs> 65 mil that they were working with, it picked up that blue. So a lot of these spreads, you're just like, well, clearly, like, this has got to be built. But no, it was like some. So yeah, it's a weird mixture of just incredible stuff that I think is really easy to take for granted in this movie. So... But we are now aboard the train. <laughs> speaking of the train, we have boarded the train. Paro has found that he's going to be bunkmates with some guy, McQueen, played by Josh Gad. And he, <laughs> just a great distinction. Uh, we are to be, uh, how you say, uh, bunkies. Bunkies. Silence from the other guy. Yes, I am disappointed too. And then the the conductor is also, at this, while this is all going on, calling out. He says, like, Simplon Orient Express heading out with stops in here and here and here and here. And it's in, he says, Simplon Orient, Orient Express. And he basically just tells us the actual stops that the Orient Express was making at this point in time. Which begs the question, what exactly was the Orient Express? Okay, so the Orient Express is... A goddamn legend for a reason. Okay. And that legend begins in 1883. I believe it was October 4th, 1883. I did not jot that down, but that's just what my mind is telling me, so we're going to uh, go with it. I can't. October uh, 4th, I need to 1883. Know. We'll see if that's true. Uh. Now, <laughs> there is a Belgian dude oh, with a fantastic name, and that Belgians. name is Georges, or George, but Georges, G. E-O-R-G-E-S. So I'm going to call him Georges or Georges Nagelmackers. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Barely of newers. <laughs> so Nagelmackers was a Belgian dude, and he was in love with his cousin. Um, and <laughs> Well, hey, you know, the Belgians, 1883, what are you going to do? Yeah, no, this is fine. I, I don't hate against incest by any means. Anybody who's heard me talk on the K-Bay podcast knows supporting taboo sexualities is kind of my brand. But he was in love with his cousin and his family did not support this taboo sexuality. So they were like, I think you need some time to cool off. We're going to send you to America. So they do. Where he sees the Pullman rail cars, because those were really big at the end of the century. And he was a giant and a titan of railroad industry in America. And the thing that was really swell about these Pullman railroads or rail cars is that they had beds. Nagelmackers, he's like, you know what? This is brilliant. I need to get my Nagelmack on. Yeah, we should <laughs> really beds. introduce this into European rail transit systems. It's kind of weird to think that there was a time in which American railroads could have an influence on rail travel <laughs> in the rest of the world. Well, I think the fact that the factor that Americans had perfected first was just making bigger cars, that doesn't really shock me too much. 
Yeah, well, it's more just that there was a really great rail industry in America at one point in time. Don't know where that went. <laughs> it disappeared. I mean, yeah. there are historical, we can trace where it went, but that's not going to happen right now. No. But basically, it's just always interesting to me that now the glory of rail travel, not America. But at one point in time, Pullman, he was he was one of the guys in rail travel. And Nagelmacher, he's like, I want to be like you, man. I want to bring these trains with beds to Europe. Do you want to get in on this with me? And Pullman is like, nah, pass. I'm too busy. And so Nagelmackers, he's not the kind of guy that would let this get him down. And copyright <laughs> law, not as much of a thing in this instance. True. It had some circumnavigational abilities to say, okay, I'm just going to take your design then, and I'm going to find other people that will finance and pay for this. So who he gets to help him finance and pay for it and get this whole thing off the ground were two royal family members and the guy who invented American tabloid journalism. <laughs> and I just kind of oh, weirdly love that. Okay. So there's a dude named William Dalton Mann who founded the Town Topics newspaper, which uh -huh. is largely regarded as the first American tabloid like kind of trash tabloid, okay. <laughs> like a gossip bag. And he had a lot of money. He was also part of the Civil War and he was an entrepreneur. He did other things. But the most important thing is the fact that he founded American tabloid gossip <laughs> trash journalism. And he had money. And so he was like, you know what? I'll help you finance this. And then Nagelmackers found some other train enthusiasts in the then Prince of Wales and the then King of Belgium. I think the Prince of Wales at the time was maybe Edward VIII. It was one of the Edwards. All I think right. it's the eighth. Sure, and sure. then Leopold II was the king of the monarch of Belgium, who at the time was known for two things, transnational travel and massacring a lot of people in the Congo. So you take the good with the bad I, <laughs> with uh. the story. Oh, uh, okay. Well, yeah, not not a great guy. Not a great guy at all. But he was a train enthusiast. Thank <laughs> so God like, for that. Didn't yeah, you know, it's one redeeming quality, I suppose. And because he was this like despot, blood curdling monarch or whatever that had uh, instigated some massacres. He had some power, mm -hmm. and he used that power to do something that's going to be really important for the Orient Express and for this movie in general, which is he facilitated allowing the Orient Express to travel between country borders without stopping. Because oh. if we remember from this film, <laughs> they don't stop, right? I mean, they right. get stopped by an avalanche, but they're going from Istanbul to Paris, and they don't have to stop. And that is incredible when you think of border control. And this train was allowed to do that because of these monarchs, huh. these royals of Belgium and <laughs> Wales, because they just like trains. Well, they were like, yeah, right. that sounds neat. So that's how that shot or that shit got done. Cue the most luxurious mofo hotel during the Belle Epoque. And it's on wheels. And that's pretty great. What the during so, the what? The Belle Epoque the pretty epic, the time stretching between the French Revolution and the First World War, basically. Oh, okay. Is, yeah, it's this era in which a lot of stuff is happening. We're mm -hmm. not going to have time for all of that right now. I'm actually going to touch upon it in a bit, but it's not going to be a whole breakdown sure. of what the belt. Well, it's a is. century of history to deal with, so I mean, yeah, understandably. It's, it's this time period in history. Sure. And 
what we have with the Orient Express that emerges is just this gorgeous, gorgeous moving hotel that is super swank. It's got these imported Spanish leathers on the seats and it has silks and it has a five-star restaurant, right? Like all of these things. And it can also physically get you from one place to the other. Tickets at the beginning of this affair cost about a fourth of the average Parisian salary to ride it. Jesus. So this was an elite experience initially, and it'll become more affordable throughout history and throughout time. And the original run of it, eventually, the official run, it, it did run first in 1883, but it doesn't become the Orient Express officially until I think it's 1891. Mm. And its full run is going to run from Paris to Istanbul and back. Not Constantinople? Well, it ran from Paris to Constantinople until like 1930. And oh. then it ran from Paris to Istanbul because in about, it's around 1930, circa 1930, that Constantinople becomes Istanbul and Istanbul is no longer Constantinople. That's right. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Been yeah, a long time, Constantinople. Yeah, then they changed it to Istanbul. Now it's hmm. a Turkish delight on a moonlit night. I mean, every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople. So if you have a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. That is true, yes. And so one of the questions becomes... <laughs> they had to have the, the They Might Be Giants write that song as like you know, a tourist thing for people at the time. Like, oh, I'm confused. Oh, it's constant. It's Istanbul now. Okay, great. Yeah, you just board the Orient Express and it starts playing that song just to let you know where you're going. <laughs> and I don't know if at the time this is set in 1934, mm -hmm. if... I would imagine a lot of the passengers on this train probably still would refer to it as Constantinople because it generally takes a little bit of time for word or place names when they change to well, really catch on for people who don't live there. I don't know if this was happening on your version, but on the version of that I was watching with subtitles, people kept saying Stanbul. No one ever said Istanbul. They just said Stanbul. Yeah, so I don't know if that's just a flaw in the subtitles in the version I had, but people were saying, I guess, Istanbul. It just it keeps sounding like they're saying Istanbul. Yeah, well, I mean, it might be a certain time period pronunciation thing. That's not necessarily my demographic area of linguistic study. So mm. it, it is possible that somebody else, because all of the details on this movie were so heavily researched, yeah. that it would not surprise me that's if that was a true, popular yeah. pronunciation in mm. the 1930s for Istanbul as it was yeah. turning over. The Not only thing I know is that yeah. the Emperor Constantine, one of the last few Roman emperors, named Constantinople after himself, and that's why it was initially named Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, fuck that dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're changing it. Smug but it prick. took some time. Screw that guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... There we have it. At some point, it is going to stop running. Technically, it ended its run in 2009, although really it ended in 1977 because that's when it stopped going into Constantinople or Istanbul. And so the line starts getting carved up in 1977. So true Orient Express fans really consider this the death date of the Orient Express. <laughs> the true, so, the true Oreos, yeah. if you will, the Ori Yeah, the true Oreos, you know, the, the railway Oreos, as we like to refer to ourselves as. <laughs> oh, you're, not I true. Know you're, I'm just making that I up I forgot right you're now, in but, that group. Yeah, my, my Yeah, bad. well, I am now because I just made it up. Oh, so. okay, great. <laughs> I'm the founding member of the Oreos. I All mean, right. you were witnessing that birth right here posthumously all of these decades after the death of the Orient Express. Although you can still ride 
in some ways the OG train because the Venice Simplon Orient Express train is now a thing. It's a private venture by Belmond using original cars and carriages from the Orient Express right from the on. 1920s and 30s. And it continues to run from London to Venice and some other destinations in Europe, including the original route from Paris to Istanbul. But it goes over a lot of places. So. Oh. And as I understood from my research, this was the line that Agatha Christie herself rode at one point a few years prior to writing this novel. Yeah, she did. So I guess there were a couple of little micro inspirations. One, once again, Lindbergh baby, put a pin in that baby. We'll get to it. But <laughs> oh, there's a phrase. Other... Put a pin right in that baby. Just stab put a that. Put a pin in that right goddamn in infant. We'll we'll get him. Maybe on later. the skull. Hey, oh, 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 I went there. Uh, yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, we will we'll, get there. We'll get there. But, but this is Jack the, um, the there Christie. There were two train yeah things that had happened, and so. One of her first journeys on the Orient Express was, I think, in 1928, and there was a blizzard that marooned oh. an Orient Express for six days. Okay, it happened a few months later. She was actually not on that oh, train, okay. but it but happened heard, a couple yeah. months later in February of 1929. And I guess she had that moment where she's like, "Oh man, I've been on that train. That could have been me." <laughs> and then later, it kind of was her a little bit because she was on a section of track in December of 1931 and flooding from a heavy rainfall washed out sections of this track. Ooh, and she's yes. like, oh man, I'm stuck here. And she wrote her husband a letter about it that later made it into some of her biographies. And so that's how we kind of know. And that was about uh, three years before the, this book was mm -hmm. published. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, these two little, I guess, Trains getting stuck and washed out because of snow and rain and sleet. They're not the U.S. Postal Service, you know? Like, <laughs> these things will hold them back. It'll slow them down. Yeah. And For those who don't know about the U.S. Postal Service's slogan, I feel like that's a weird insider reference for international <laughs> audiences. They have a Neither rain a nor hail nor sleet nor sleet. snow. Yeah, well, like, hold back the U.S. Postal Service. I was like, that's not true. It totally does, but whatever. The last little detail I like uh, that I discovered about the original Orient Express, like th especially this one, we noticed earlier it was called the Simplon Orient Express, or as you said, the Ven uh, Venice Simplon Orient Express. It's called the Simplon Orient Express because it goes through the Simplon tunnels, which I believe were on the border of Italy and Switzerland, which are these gigantic, uh, these super long tunnels that are miles long that go through the Alps that took the better part of eight years to carve out through the mountains so that the train Insane. could get through there. Insane. I know, right? That's just... Yeah, Nagelmackers. Look at you get shit done. <laughs> he Nagelmacked that mountain, man. Yeah, I don't know if he was actually instrumental in carving out the mountain or if they had done it for other reasons. I didn't look into who carved that mountain, but, you know, I like to think that Nagelmackers had a, had a hand and it just so that we can say Nagelmackers one more time. Nagelmackers. <laughs> now, that all covered. So, yes, this was an actual train route. It mm -hmm. was very popular. It made it into a lot of pop culture references. There's going to be a lot of movies, a lot of books, a lot of short stories that either reference the Orient Express or are set on the Orient Express. Indeed, yes. And along the way, as we've gotten onto the train, we've met... More and more characters. Michelle Pfeiffer is there as this woman who is just immediately thirsty for Perot, just hardcore macking on him. 
Uh, we meet Johnny Depp's character, who's just some scary-looking guy. They have a, he has a creepy scene with Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Yeah, all sorts of interactions going on there. See, and I think that moment is actually kind of fun and weirdly sexually charged in a gross way because Depp is standing outside Michelle Pfeiffer's little sleeper car and they're looking at each other. And she says something along the lines of, if you stare any longer, I'm going to have to charge you for the view. I'll pay. I'm like, ooh, smooth. <laughs> I, love I like it. She just says, you know, some men, they have a look and they don't even need to say anything. And yet the mouth still opens. <laughs> the mouth still opens. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I actually, that, that was working on me, the I'll pay. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of liked that arrangement. I was like, I'll, I'll let you pay me. That's fine. <laughs> Although Johnny Depp in this, it is weird because this look is deliberately cultivated to be this way. But it's so odd because often Johnny Depp has some sort of charisma to his roles, some sort of attraction or attractability in his roles. But mm -hmm. there's something about this character that is just closed off from all of that. Like mm -hmm. he just walled up whatever charisma <laughs> and attractive qualities he has and is just like this very deadened, inaccessible character. And he's doing some really low, gravelly, fricative things with his voice. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it is both clearly Johnny Depp, but it's also not at the same time. He just doesn't have that swagger. We join Poirot in the morning, and Poirot has the greatest thing ever, and that is a mustache bra. Yeah. <laughs> just that, that is a word for it, this, for sure. This thing that's just strapped onto his face, just keeping that stash like in place and he gets <laughs> gets the two eggs and he just looks at the eggs like oh perfect yes <laughs> just so happy about his eggs delightful yeah there is a deleted scene that oh. is included on the blu-ray really okay i could see where it wasn't necessary for the pacing but it was kind of fun and that was Perot getting ready for bed. Okay. <laughs> Where he has this little mustache bra on, <laughs> but he also just has all of these very meticulous rituals. So he takes off his waistcoat and he's wearing a corset underneath that is very like men during the Belle Epoque, not uncommon if they're okay. really dandyish, wanting to like have that very perfection. So it's like, He's just, he's very uptight, right? He's actually got that boning corset and he's meticulously grooming his nose hairs <laughs> on this moving train, which actually does provide a little bit of suspense because it's this sharp metal tweezer thing that he's got up his nose as the train is rocking. And you're like, holy shit, this could not go well. Wow. And he has just all of his little nightly lotions and his clocks to keep track of stuff. So it was a little character building thing that they deemed not necessary yeah. later on. But it was kind of fun that he just is a very uptight, always like in his little corset and and plucking his nose hairs meticulously right before bed. Yeah. And yet he has this moment where he lets out this kind of like breath of relief within like the corset. And so he kind of slumps a little bit. So we uh. get to see like this humanish side. But yeah, no, we just see him wake up in his mustache bra. That's enough. He's super excited about finally finding two perfect eggs because this train, this train is perfection <laughs> on its culinary <laughs> delights. Yeah, he heads to the dining car for breakfast, and we have, th this kitchen has got some action going on. They are flambéing some stuff, flames are going all around, they are cooking up all the things. The people who are ordering food 
can make alterations to the the orders that they have. There's a bit where Dame Judy Dench, she's playing some older Russian aristocrats or what have you, and her assistant is making changes to the thing on the menu, like, uh, change this for this, do this, do this, do yeah, make that happen. And they say, okay, yeah, no problem. So this is a kitchen that not only has these extravagant dishes that they can make, they can also alter them if they need to. Yeah, and that is accurate to the goddamn Orient Express. Because, trivia fact, this was a gourmand train. It was known for its delectable food preparation, which was really impressive because it's being cooked in this very small space of a train car. The very first menu on board this train that I could find, I think it's the first one ever, is oysters, soup with Italian pasta, turbo with green sauce, chicken a la chassure, filet of beef with chateau potatoes, chauffeur of game animals, lettuce chocolate pudding, and a buffet of desserts. So this was wow. the... Okay. This was just the first yeah, meal the that opening. was served. That's the opener. That <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you've got your appetizers, you got your soup, you got your pasta, and then you got your dish, and then you have your main dish, I guess. It's a whole thing. I don't know. But yes, the desserts were also known to be quite spectacular because this was a train that was going through some of the best patisserie dessert places in the world. Right? We're stopping at Paris and Venice and Istanbul, so you've got some They load up stuff. with the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I did also find a quote from one of the snooty passengers that had reviewed <laughs> this train upon their journey. <laughs> yes. Ancient Yelp reviews. I love it. Yes. And this amazingly worded old school 19th century Yelp review was the bright white tablecloths and napkins, artistically and coquettishly folded by the sommeliers, the glittering glasses, the ruby red and topaz white wine, the crystal clear water decanters and the silver capsules of the champagne bottles, they blind the eyes of the public both inside and out. Wow. Okay. That's, yeah. That is something. So as much as we romanticize the Orient Express in today's time, it was romanticized back then as well. This God was damn. the deluxe thing to do. This was the Titanic of trains. It just didn't hit any icebergs. Oh, fair enough. So yeah. there is that. This scene's also great because we get more more dialogue with Book. Perot is just happy as hell about the food. Then Book says, and yet the best things in the train are not food. You know, there's something about a tangle of strangers pressed together for days on end with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another then never to see each other again. Boredom plus anomaly plus a constant gentle rocking. And Perot says, with your hobbies, you will never amount to anything. God, I hope so. God, I hope so. <laughs> I love Book. <laughs> yeah. Gentle rocking that I find very exciting. <laughs> he's so great. Also, he's really great because he's going to serve some wine. So speaking of red and white wine, we've got the wine factoring in quite heavily here <laughs> in this scene. And that is first going to come in with Penelope Cruz's character. She is very religious and pious and not very fun. She's going to no. bring the room down a whole bunch of times throughout this entire <laughs> film. But the first time is when little book, he's offering her some drink. And she's like, nah, 
I don't want any. It's like, does alcohol doesn't agree with you? She's like, sin does not agree with me. And he kind of gives her this look like, okay. And so she continues, vice is where the devil finds his darlings. And then he just looks at her and he's like, we should no longer speak. <laughs> <laughs> and off he goes. And it's like, fuck yeah, Book. Oh, fuck yeah. I, lo- I love an honest rake, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's we book. should no longer speak. And I'm out. So he goes and he sits down with Pierrot and yeah, talks about the gentle rocking of the cars that he finds very exhilarating. And you would Meanwhile, think everyone's happy. But no, Willem Dafoe's character, some Austrian guy, this Austrian professor, he's very upset because he's been sat with Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, Dr. Abernot. You must never again seat me with him. You do not mix the races. And he points to Daisy Ridley's wine that she's drinking. Wines Wines that she's drinking. Mm -hmm. And points to the red wine and the white wine and says stuff about not mixing. And she, who has been formally very well established, is like fucking Dr. Abernoth. Abernoth? Abernoth? Arbuthnot. Arbuthnot. She takes one glass of wine and pours it into the other and says, I like a good rosé, and drinks it very defiantly. Okay, fine. Good metaphor. Which, yeah, I get the metaphor and everything. But why does this bitch just have two glasses of wine, though? Why is she drinking a white glass of wine and a red glass of wine? Well, she's having fish and meat alternatively. Uh, So she needs to, like, take one bite, (laughs) sip. (laughs) Take another bite of the other dish and sip. Or maybe motherfucker. just whoever was sitting next to her had a glass of red wine. And she's like, you know what? Fuck their wine. I'm going to prove a point to this Austrian asshole. I know he's coming. And that's <laughs> actually kind of the interesting thing here is that, yeah, maybe it's just production that they put it in for the sake of the metaphor of the movie. But there is a potential reading here that she actually did set the bit up so that she could do it (laughs) and make a point because, spoiler alert here, before the murder even happens, all these motherfuckers know each other and they all are going to do this crime in some capacity. Because it's an Agatha Christie novel and Agatha Christie loves her twists like that. It's always something unexpected outside the box, right? And so this is an entire machination of people aboard a train and... They thought they were going to be alone. And that actually recontextualizes what's really interesting when Pierrot first enters the train in that glorious long tracking shot from the outside. So we're going to see him go on the train and walk by all of these people that are standing outside of their cabins. And we're getting it from the outside of the windows looking in. So they're kind of broken up a little bit by the panels of the train from the outside. But we do see each of them looking at him or saying hello. And... In hindsight, you're realizing he is just doing this very unknowing, naive parade down the aisle in front of all these people are like, oh, fuck, like, (laughs) we are here aboard this train to commit a murder and try to get away with murder. And out of all of the goddamn detectives, out of all of the countries, we get the number one detective in the world (laughs) boarding this train to share a sleeper car with like one of our planned assassins or whatever god damn it yeah and all of them are kind of looking at each other a little bit in the background like what are we gonna do with this dude right because yeah he's not supposed to be there he's the unexpected wrench in the plan so they are doing a lot of what they can here to set up and they're going to continue to do this to set up this idea that they do not know each other 
they do not like each other and they do not accept each other because everything that is placed within this movie is going to be on purpose. And there's going to be a lot of really strange, heavy-handed nationalism and also racism. And this is one of those moments here where we've got this nationalistly defined Defoe here pretending to be this German nationalist or Austrian nationalist, as the case may be, and racist. And that's going to set up this idea that he's probably not then in cahoots with the doctor planning the murder of one of the people on the train. This also gets into some of the bigger themes that are happening in this movie, as well as the 19th century in general. And it's one of the things that I find the most interesting about the heavy-handed nationalism, because there are many ways that you could show or have these characters try to distance themselves from each other and to pretend to not know each other or to pretend to dislike each other. So making it a nationalist reason is a very deliberate choice mm -hmm. out of a larger pool that they could have chosen from. And why nationalism becomes interesting here is that pin in the Belle Epoque, or the 19th century, is going to be a century defined largely in history by the concept of nationalism. We have this idea classically in history that it is a society of states founded on the national principle when an aristotic and bourgeois European spirit deteriorated in the face of passionate and popular nationalism. It's going to get popularized by things like the French Revolution, right? Sure. This idea of like the state over the monarch and mm -hmm. this idea of being French. And that's going to happen in a lot of different places as well. And this is also simultaneously happening at a time where imperialism is at its height. So we've got these very nationalistically border-defined countries that are then trying to extend and take over settlements all over the world. And so that is somehow simultaneously expanding borders, but also regimentally sticking to borders by saying like, this is a British colony and this is a French colony, and yet our borders have grown. There was this dude, Cecil Rhodes, in 1902 uh -huh. that had yeah. this observation that is often quoted in the history of nationalism, people who study nationalist identity, is that the world is nearly all parceled out, and what there is left of it is being divided up, conquered, and colonized. And this was supposed to be both a prideful thing for him and also lament, right? It's the hmm. same concept of... When Alexander looked out over the breadth of his kingdom, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. And so it's that idea that, like, somehow this entire world was becoming just carved up by these very few nation states and being forced to become part of a nation, but also othered, and the boundaries are exploring or exploding and expanding. Mm -hmm. Also, at this time, we have this massive expansion in not just border expansion, but distance travel and communication, mm -hmm. right? Because if you are expanding all over the globe, a necessity is going to be distance travel capabilities sure. and distance communication capabilities. And we're starting so to get that. Yeah. Got to get on that shit. Railroads, yeah. So they're telegrams. They're helping do that. Yeah, we did. A we touched a little bit upon the communication explosion at the end of the 19th century and personal shopper. But oh, yeah. 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 So that, that's kind of also mm -hmm. drawing from this time period as well. But all of this, what this is going to do is going to create a conundrum of both nationalist ideology and transnational momentum. And this movie is going to play with that, right? That weird space. And that we have these 
strangers on a train, seemingly split by their national identities, and yet traveling on a train that does not stop at borders, <laughs> as we've already <laughs> previously established, Orton Express did not stop at borders. And it's all because, as it turns out in the end, this larger ideology that's bigger than anything else. And that is vengeance. <laughs> so this, yeah, this concept of like, where do people, you know, how do they bond and how do they come together? But I do find this. We all really, just want to stab a motherfucker. That's how we yeah, bond. So like <laughs> nationalist sensibilities break down when you just all want to band together and stab a bitch. But I do find, yeah, this whole time period choice of playing around with nationalist extremes while on a transnational form of transportation to mm -hmm. be this really great perplex gray area yeah. that embodies the turn of the century mm -hmm. that is ha which is pretty much the sum up of this time period in history and so that's kind of fun so yeah, if you're nice. wondering like why the hell are they harping on all of these nationalist things so much two reasons one as part of the ruse to try to distance <laughs> themselves in perot's eyes from each other and two because nationalist transnationalism was the paradox conundrum of the turn of the century damn right yeah and that's my micro dissertation on that i yeah what happens next giant dips ratchet character this mean looking motherfucker sits down with perot says like hey uh i got this extra dessert you want some of it and i love the perot just says uh can i have the little curly bit on the top I'm like yeah yeah you can you're a weird guy <laughs> Because <laughs> Perot, he has indulgences and he can be bribed with sweets. Yes, he can. And Ratchet explains that he has come into money. He's gotten into art dealing, but he doesn't have a very good eye and he can't really spot a fake when he gets it. And so he's accidentally sold a lot of fakes to a lot of very bad people who might want him dead. So he wants Perot to watch his back. Perot is not in the business of protecting criminals and has no sympathy for him failing to sell good art to criminals. So he says, no, I will not do it. Also, I just don't like your face. So no, none of that. What's interesting is that this whole thing about Ratchet selling artwork to criminals is an invention of the movie. In the book, we get that Ratchet seems to be a mean guy who has apparently a face that nobody likes. And he asks Perot for help. And in the book, Perot just says, no, I will not help you. And, well, why not? Why won't you help me? To put it simply, sir, I do not like your face. So, I don't know. Mm. Book Perot's a bit of an asshole. He's still, he can be a bit of a prick in the movie, but Book Perot is, he, he's the bigger asshole, I think. Yeah, I don't know if that's really, with all of his, there's right and there's wrong morality, and then nothing in between. I feel like... Letting a dude die because you don't like his face yeah. <laughs> might not necessarily be on that scale. Somehow. I know. I, I think that that's just me. it's a smart addition of the movie to add this thing in that for Perot to say, I do not protect criminals. You are a criminal, sir. I will not be protecting you no, no matter how much money you offer me. So, no. Fair yeah. enough. I think it also gives an excuse as to why Ratchet is on this train. If he is dealing in art and antiques, mm -hmm. the smuggling, the sale, or the counterfeiting thereof of what is probably at this time as well a lot of import from the East mm -hmm. and the art and artifacts from the East 
to Western buyers that that is probably what he's doing aboard this train is smuggling goods, be it counterfeit or stolen, from Istanbul and bringing them back to Paris to sell. Mm -hmm. The other note about this scene that I love is that Perrault has taken up reading, I think it's A Tale of Two Cities. He's reading something by Charles Dickens. And we have repeat scenes of him laughing, like just reading and laughing his ass off at... (laughs) At Charles Dickens or Tale of Two Cities, like, oh, 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 Dickens, your mastermind. (laughs) Again, I like that this movie lets us see Perot enjoying things. The book offers us none of that. Yeah. Although it also shows him, not necessarily right at this point, but do you want to talk about his lost love, Catherine? So at the moment, yeah, at breakfast, after, you know, Book points out that trains man they are great because people are gonna fuck on trains and he's like you you should get in on that perot and perot just says well no that's never really been my uh, my area there was once a a love katrine yes and when we oh, see him katrine and when we see him in his cabin he has this framed photograph that he sets down and just looks at very lovingly the books never mention a Katrine or Catherine or what have you that Perot is in love with, as far as I know, he kind of has a love interest in a few short stories. This woman named Vera Rosikoff, who is this jewel thief, like a super glamorous jewel thief. And Perot foils her thefts, gets the jewels back from her, but in the process apparently is very smitten with her and just respects her intelligence so much that he lets her go. It reminds me a lot of the you know, the Sherlock story oh, with so Irene Adler. <laughs> Irene, yeah, it's kind of an Irene Adler thing where he seems to respect her intelligence so much, and she admits to him like, "You are the only man in this world I'm afraid of," and I guess that's just that's how you flirt with Perot. <laughs> Tell him like, "You scare me. Oh, ho, 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 I scare <laughs> you. Yes, I let you go. You yeah. hot Russian hottie. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I fear you. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> y- yeah. But we don't get but that yes, here. It's the plight of the deductive mind. Yeah. Right? They're just constantly drawn to the criminals. That criminal detective. Two sides of the coin. But yeah, this this Catherine character, Katrine, that he seems to have memories of. Yeah, as far as I know, there's no character like that in the books. So this that's another invention of it, which I don't mind. I don't, I don't think that ruins Poirot in any real way. It doesn't ruin it, but it is a little weird because he's constantly talking to this woman and we never get the story as to whether or not she was a great love of his that reciprocated that and Mm -hmm. then died or if it's just somebody he's been pining over but's never had a conversation with. If this is just the stock photo that he found or that came with the frame (laughs) and he is making up this idea of this woman in his mind because the imbalance compulsions that he has would never let him love another human being because they are going to fundamentally have flaws. So did he construct this fictitious person (laughs) in his head? Also, she looks really young. So it's also hard not to read some sort of Humbert Humbert Lolita thing where this was (laughs) his lost love that died when he was like 14. And now his psyche is constantly frozen back in that time. And he's constantly searching for replication of his sweet Catherine. I don't know. There's options. Yeah. We're not given any answers. So it's like, I don't know 
who this person is. Like, it humanizes him, I guess, in the way that he's pining for something. But I don't know on the scale of creepy to just sad, <laughs> the scale falls. <laughs> I get the feeling like maybe this is some stage actor that he is. He's standing really hard. Also possible. Yeah. Really, I would not be shocked if Perot fell hard for like an opera singer or a stage actor who presented this beautiful opulent world, like a world that was as he sh- thinks the world should look and seem. Cause that's what yeah. he says. Like I see the world as it should be. And when it is not, it, it stands out to me and theater can be a perfected world. So maybe that's what he falls in love with. Yeah. I don't know. I think Kenneth Brown just wanted more excuses to say stuff out loud. <laughs> <laughs> To a photograph now, actually. Let's make fun of him. Uh, and he tries to fall asleep as after looking at this uh, little uh, photograph. He gazes at this photograph. He reads some Dickens. He tries oh, to Dickens. sleep. <laughs> but he hears things. He's... There's a lot of commotion in the night. And that is then followed by a lot of commotion as an avalanche just rips down this mountain. Yeah, I love how epic. This is fucking Saruman bringing down the mountain here where a a motherfucking lightning bolt hits the mountain and causes an avalanche. And that's what stops the train. Holy shit. God did not want this train to go one inch further. Yes, fate has intervened, you see. A murder is about to be committed. And the powers that be, or the law of large numbers, either one, are going to come striking down from the sky and prevent this train from going any further until Perot can solve it. Yeah, It's as if there was some sort of authorial hand that was in control of these people like mere puppets on a page. Uh, the book is not like this. <laughs> the book is just, it's what actually happened to Agatha Christie where, you know, it snowed really hard and that, Snow fu- happens, that yeah. fucked with the tracks, you know, that was about it. But I get the feeling for the movie, they're like, no, we can't just have a snowstorm. We really need to up this action a little bit. Yeah, that was kind of Michael Green and Kenneth Branagh's takeaway in the commentary was we tried to stay really, really accurate and faithful to the books, but the one thing that the studio said that we had complete free reign on was juicing up the action, the tension and the drama of the action a little bit. Because really, we're on this set linear track, right? There's only so much that can happen in theory as they're going down this track. Although technically this could be a nice, quiet little movie where they get snowed in on this train and have to solve it. But there is something that, yeah, is, I suppose, really dramatic in that Old Testament way of the lightning striking upon the mountain that this train gets totally derailed. And it does also demonstrate a little bit of the peril of transnational travel at this period in time, because this train is going to go off the tracks. And you're thinking... There's no cranes that can just (laughs) drive through this tunnel to help them. There's no helicopter that can try to lift it back up. Like, human labor is going to have to shovel this train out and somehow use different angular physics to push this thing back on the track. And that's kind of astounding in its own right. It's Mm -hmm. its own deductive marvel. And so there is a kind of cool tension that builds in the aftermath of this avalanche, even more so than the avalanche itself, especially since this train is going to stop or come to a stop 
right on top of what looks like a not all that rickety, but still vertigo inducing for people who are not into heights. Yeah. Structural bridge. That it's not a bridge it, I would want to have to sit on for a few days. Yeah, you're like, okay, all of the weight of this train and the snow is on top of this wooden bridge structure that has lattice work going all the way down out of the frame, basically. <laughs> so, And it's between these two icy snowed over paths. Like, It looks like this could be a problem if anybody moved too quickly that they might collapse. Another really gorgeous practical set design, actually. A good portion of this wooden structural bridge was physically built and the train that they built is on top of it it's not as high as the cgi is then going to later add on but a good portion of this is a practically built set and that is wonderful incredible but yes a murder has taken place <laughs> the butler played by Derek jacoby he tries yeah. to yeah, tries to knock on Ratchet's door, and Ratchet is not answering. And Perot is a little curious, too. He says, uh, let me check this out. Goes down, oh, the door is locked. There is very cold air coming out of this. Uh, let me check this out. Uses his cane, you know, like a pro, just snaps that door open. And they discover, holy shit, Ratchet, he's come down with a bad case of 13 stab wounds. Yeah, he's totally dead. And I, this is like a shot. They kind of do this again later on where the discovery of Ratchet's body and later on when they are examining his corpse is this just almost not even barely moving overhead shot of them opening the door and we us seeing the body and it's so slow and methodical. It just, it stands out because you never see stuff like this very much. Yeah, it's an crazy fun shot yeah. it is really great so they mount this camera on the wall so that we can see at first out in the hallway per top of perot's head and then the other people coming from either side and in some ways because they are physically shooting inside a constrained small space it is a great solution on how to shoot that because mm -hmm. if you think about okay we have these characters in the scene and then you try to add in a camera crew. <laughs> like, where's that camera crew going to stand? <laughs> they have to stand to either one side or the other if we're physically going to get the shot. And yeah, you could set up a sort of your standard shot, reverse shot, and just flip the crew around to the other side of the hallway. Mm -hmm. But that perspective is going to be limited in a very different way. And we've also gotten a lot of those constrained inside the hallway corridor feel already so by lifting this camera up so that it is a direct bird's eye view directly overhead suddenly we have a little bit more space to work with and also these people characters suddenly become these pawns within their setting because we see just the tops of their heads and where they're positioned on the board and it's a really cool little choice it just puts us in that authorial view of the situation. And we're also going to get that shot with the body of Johnny Depp's character itself, where you just have this bird's eye, directly down view of the interior of the cabin. Once again, this is the only physical way for a camera crew to get this shot and have actors inside of it 
Yeah, it's just that, that's the way to do it. cutting around nonstop shot, reverse shot, like you mentioned. This is just one master shot, and I think that is an element of using 65 millimeter that you can you can do that. There's so much visual detail in that larger format of film that, yeah, you could just hold the shot, and it's all there. You don't need to go in for a close-up. Like, the visual information is there for you. Yeah, and... Brenna did bring up that the executives or people on set also were like, do you want to get close-up shots of the different evidence in the room? And what he referred to as like those CSI shots, you know, suddenly you snap in on the (laughs) cup or you go into the arterial vein. He seemed to have a lot of respect for the CSI shots, which I appreciated because Mm -hmm. they are their own trend-setting form of visual camera work in an industry. But that that to him was too forensic, that it's also a little too leading. But for him, the reason wasn't even just don't give the game away. It was that's too much of a forensic mindset to think of where might there be fingerprints or where might there be trash. Instead, he wanted to show the mind view of Perot, which is you walk into a scene. This is the scene. What do you notice? When you walk into the scene, audience, mm-hmm. do you notice that cup on the floor? Do you notice the trash over on the old nightstand? Do you notice the way that this guy is bleeding or not? <laughs> right? Because the forensic way of CSI filming does feed us certain things. It says like, oh, well, we should look at this and we should think of it in this manner. Instead, no crime is you walk into a scene and you have to be the one to pick up, like, what is it that I should zero in on here? And as you said, since it's 65 millimeter, we can actually see those details on the floor, but the camera's not gonna spoon feed those to us because this is just the cold, hard reality of the set, especially at the turn of the century, where a lot of it is psychological and building the story of motivation more so than forensic evidence, because it's 1934. You have a little bit of preliminary fingerprinting, actually, in 1934, but that's about it. Oh, <laughs> so. very nice. Well, uh, yeah. So suffice to say, Perot, he is on the case. He tells everybody, yeah, Ratchet's just been murdered. Uh, and I'm going to check it out because I'm the greatest detective in the world. And we have so many, we have not only a lot of reaction shots of the passengers when he announces that Ratchet is dead, but then also all these shots when he says, I'm the greatest detective ever, I'm going to work this out. And there are many camera shots and close-ups of the passengers, but looking through these glass panes that are angled ever so slightly to cause the light of their images to be refracted each time that the camera passes by them. It's just like this, there's a glorious like in-camera effect that's going yes. on. This kind of prism thing that's happening with everybody showing. Yeah, and no lens flares. Yeah, Took no. those out. Refracted light, no lens flares. What up? <laughs> Gorgeous. A lot of that. And he begins to interview people. And one thing I really have to give for the movie versus the book is the book is so methodical in how it interviews all the characters. Like, because after Perot decides to take the case, each chapter is just the evidence of Mr. McQueen, the evidence of Dr. Oberthot, the evidence of the prince, like on and on and on. It's just, each chapter is just Perot sitting and talking to somebody. And the next few scenes are Perot sitting and talking to people, but they do find creative ways to mix it up a little bit. So... I like that. Again, it's a very plot-heavy thing. We won't go into all of it. The big things are that 
Perot notices a piece of paper that he's pretty sure he was not supposed to notice in Ratchet's cabin. Because he says all this evidence seems way too obvious. But this one thing over here doesn't seem like I should see it. So he takes that and uncovers that it's a note to Ratchet saying, Daisy's blood is on your hands. And he, he knows what that is. That's referring to Daisy Armstrong, a young child that was kidnapped and murdered by a gangster named Cassetti, who Ratchet really is. Ratchet is a false identity. He is really the gangster Cassetti who has changed his name after being let off on a technicality of child murder. Now, this story is one of the very few times when Agatha Christie pulled a very real crime and used it as inspiration in one of her books. That very real-life crime was the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. The Lindbergh baby. Most people have heard that term just in through cultural osmosis, Lindbergh baby. What was the Lindbergh baby, London? So the Lindbergh baby was a kidnapping of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. on March 1st of 1932. A 20-month-year-old boy of the aviating champions Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh. And it is a very similar story that we get to little Daisy here. He was a young boy that was asleep in his crib until he was no longer asleep in his crib because he had been kidnapped and absconded with through the window. And there was a maid or a nanny who was asleep. I don't know if she was drunk or not, but I know she noticed that the baby wasn't in the crib. Right. Went to go ask the mother if she had the baby. Mother was like, no, nah, I don't have the baby. That's why I pay you for She's like, okay, well, I think we have a problem then because I don't have the baby either. And turns out nobody had the baby because the baby had been kidnapped. They found a note. There was a ransom note. It was a very weird ransom note that had all of these strange misspellings and weird word phrases <laughs> and stuff, but seemed to be from an uneducated individual or from somebody whose first language was not English. There was speculations that maybe... The first language had been German. Um, I don't know why linguists deduced that about the letter, but they speculated that might be the case. And it demanded that the Lindberghs pay a whole bunch of money for the baby. And they did, technically. There was uh, some exchanges in the newspaper. It was a whole big case because things like rich people's curly-haired little babies getting stolen out of their mansions just wasn't a thing, really, that the <laughs> oh. population knew could happen. They're like, this is a big news story. And so it got a lot of coverage. Sadly, that baby after the ransom had been paid, baby did not reappear by the ransomers, but there was somebody who went to go and actually... I think pissed behind a bush or something of that nature. Not Jesus. very glamorous. That was near to the Lindbergh estate, and then they found the body of this child. So that baby had seemed to have perished earlier on, mm -hmm. pretty early into the case by a blow to the head, and had been left there, tried for a quick burial, but did not seem... I don't know exactly what they think happened in terms of if they thought those dropped or if somebody like aggressively bashed him. There are books on this. I mm -hmm. did not read an entire book on the Lindbergh kidnapping, <laughs> so these details might be out there and accessible. I just don't know them. For the sake of this movie, care that much. a cursory yeah. look at the Wikipedia page is going to suffice, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, no, this is stuff I know about the Lindbergh. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Well, no, the things that I... Because I read a little bit about it, 
and what disturbed me, like that I did not know. I had heard Lindbergh baby kidnapping. I had never heard that a ransom was paid for this kid. And then they found the child already dead, not just already dead, but had been dead for two months. So the whole time that the kidnappers are ransoming this kid, they already know the kid is dead, which is really fucked up. Well, I mean, I guess once you reach a certain line, right, you just I mean, like commit and you keep going. Like you've already killed a baby. You might as well get paid for it. I, but <laughs> but um, the, the big difference is that in Christie's story, this kidnapping that carried out by Cassetti and the murder of the child, Cassetti is taken to trial, but because of some technicality, he gets off scot-free and leaves the country and reinvents himself as Ratchet, which, you know, back in the day, changing your identity wasn't that difficult a thing to do. Nowadays, slightly different. But in real life, the kidnapper and murderer of the child was caught and was swiftly executed the alleged kidnapper and murderer. There's a lot of people that don't think it was that yeah. still think he was innocent. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of Lindbergh conspiracy stuff out there. There also was a suspect initially who, very similarly to what we get in this movie, was suspected first, a maid on the premises, whose alibi at first didn't look like it checked out. And mm -hmm. so they kept hounding her and pushing her, and she committed suicide. That becomes a plot point in this movie. That set the public, yeah, off. And that becomes a plot point within Agatha Christie as well, is that within this Daisy Armstrong case, there was a maid that was accused first. And then there was another person who may or may not be innocent, seems to be accused. And so it, it's following a lot of similar stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Lindbergh baby gets kidnapped in 1932. Agatha Christie's book comes out in 1934. Yeah. That's pretty fresh. That's two years. Uh, yeah, that that's as ripped from the headlines as you could get for that's a like novel. A, that's like SVU. That's like, <laughs> like we're going to take this headlines case and we're going to write some crime fiction about it in a very thinly veiled way. And I have to imagine that that's kind of weird and a little sensational and exploitational at the time to say mm -hmm. like, we're going to have these very thinly veiled characters based off of the Lindbergh family go kill somebody on a train. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> It just seems weird. Uh -huh. The cool thing about the Lindbergh case, the most important thing is that it actually was the case that changed kidnapping into a federal yeah. purview. So mm -hmm. the Lindbergh law is actually what gives us the, if you take a child or really any person, but start with children across state lines during a kidnapping, it becomes a federal case. We have the Lindbergh baby to thank for that. In this section of the movie, Perot interviews people. And basically, one, he interviews them and discovers that the people who knew Ratchet hated him. And then he keeps discovering that almost every single passenger, in fact, every passenger, has some sort of connection to the Armstrong kidnapping case. What a strange kawinky dink, yeah. wouldn't you say? McQueen... Ratchet's assistant, he was a lawyer, and his dad was a lawyer on the Armstrong case. The, uh, God, I mean, I, I could go through the list, but... They all have connections. They all have connections, yeah, suffice to say. One thing that comes up in a scene in the movie that's also in the, the book, and is actually unique in this movie for being kept the same as it is in the novel, when Perot goes to talk to the psychopath dancer and his bizarre calming walking bottle of barbitol wife uh to interview them 
he realizes that the countess is her real name is Helena Goldberg Goldenstein, or it's a very Jewish name. And he realizes, oh, wait, you're related to this other actress, Linda Arden, who was actually the mother of the kidnapped baby's mother. And it's, you know, they're all related and they are a Jewish family. I've read that's a very deliberate choice that Agatha Christie made to make this fictionalized version of Charles Lindbergh's wife Jewish. Because Charles Lindbergh, known for three things in this world, he was the aviator guy, he was the guy who had a baby kidnapped, and he was a fucking anti-Semite. It's just interesting to me that they keep this thing about Sonia Armstrong's family being Jewish in this version of the movie, because in both the 1974 version, I believe the 2010 version of the story of the film and the made-for-TV version, they change up those last names. So, like, the family is not Jewish. I just found that weird that they would change that up for the sake of those movies and made-for-TV specials. But, yeah, this movie is unique in that it keeps that aspect of it. Yeah, and I guess without the context of why it would matter one way or the other, I suppose the reading becomes a little bit more tied into the beginning and the setup of the Old Testament morality. Yeah. We have a family of Jewish descent that... Well, actually, a lot of Jewish people, not that religious, not that old school Old Testament, but like Mm. technically come from a lineage, I suppose, of the Old Testament. And so it goes back into that morality. And then we Mm. find that the players within this micro play are living in a much more complex world. The Old Testament, they're enacting Old Testament justice of vengeance. Mm. That's true. But yeah, whether or not that is strictly morality, Mm -hmm. right or wrong, is going to be questioned. Because that is the theme of this entire movie. So, yeah, he's going to question a bunch of people about whether or not they killed this guy to get back on track here. I sure didn't do it. The scene where he interviews the Count and the Countess is awesome because we get talk of Barbatol. The Countess explaining, like, I have to, like, take this stuff all the goddamn time because I can't stand daylight and I need to sleep. So, yeah, I am swimming in Barbital 24-7. Yeah. The fuck is Barbital? So, Barbital is one of the first or the first commercially available barbiturates. It was developed in 1902-1903 and marketed under the brand names of Veronal for the pure acid form and Mednol for the sodium salt tablet variety. And it was usually used as a sleeping aid because it had a hypnotic and sort of metabolic depression thing going on where it just slowed everything down like barbiturates will do. And it often made people feel very sleepy, loopy, and intoxicated. But it did calm the nerves and it did help people sleep. Although over time, the more you take it, the more your body becomes used to it. So the more you have to take. And so it was quite common for people around this time to take Barbital, although they would probably call it Veronal. But Mm. I suppose if she said that, it wouldn't necessarily be as known (laughs) in terms of what that is, I guess, because people know the word Barbital more because it sounds like barbiturate. It did continue to be used until the mid-1950s as a sleeping aid. So 1934, she still would have been right in the the sweet spot of using some Barbital. But yeah, you do become 
used to it and so have to start taking more and more. One of the more well-known historical figures that was a very open Barbital user was actually the Russian Tsarina Alexandra Fyodorovna. Okay, that's a name. Yeah, and she was very similar in some ways to this character. I'm almost wondering if this character kind oh. of pulled from her in a little oh, way okay. because she was known as somebody who's very, very pale, couldn't really face the sunlight much. She was seen as very sweet and very beautiful and was married to this other Russian dude that had a bit of a temper. I do think they have some sort of Russian connection as well, right? Because isn't Judy Dench's character Russian? Like her... Yes. The so Princess that whole yeah. like thing. Yeah, and she was the favored... Alexandra was the favored granddaughter made surrogate daughter of Queen Victoria before she was like married off to Russia. So it was like during that time oh. where everybody's kind of like incestuously, you know, like ruling the world and getting married off or like political alliances. Team of family there for everybody. Come on, what are you gonna do? But yeah, so it does seem like that Russian princess Serena kind of vibe is strong with this one. And <laughs> one of the quotes that I remember of Alexandra's was just like, oh, Barbatol, I'm literally saturated with it oh well and the way that this character here does deliver with this idea of like i take oodles of it there's just something that automatically run me <laughs> they do in like the alexandra fyodorovna thing maybe i don't know i still don't really fully get these two characters they seem to both be like <laughs> royalty but also ballet dancers but i don't know how she dances ballet because people seem to want to take their picture because there's these great russian or maybe british ballet stars maybe but she is just like hopped up on barbadol all the time and barely conscious so i don't know when she just became a ballet dancer and where she performs i get the feeling she was a ballet dancer first and then suffered the tragedy that Paro reveals later on that she was the sister of the woman whose child was kidnapped. So after that, she then turned to because they other characters say that later on. Like oh, they, she's the sister. Oh, she's the sister of the mother of the baby. Right. 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 Okay. So that because of that tragedy. So yeah, for some reason I thought she was like the sister of the baby, and not, like that she grew up in this oh, no. <laughs> like world of horror or no, something. It's like, yeah, I think that is meant to, we're meant to infer that because of this tragedy that has happened within the past few years, this once great dancer has taken to Baratol 24-7 and is utterly useless now uh, to herself as a dancer and as a performer, even though okay, she once was, she once like had a lot of grace and was a, once a great performer, is now turned to drugs because of what happened to her, because of that guy that she stabbed. Yeah. Your brain on drugs, kids. This is your brain on drugs. I do enjoy the the brief bit with Willem Dafoe, who has been up to this point faking this Austrian accent. Perot calls him out. He said, like, you pronounce the name of the city Turin and not Turin. Like, you got me. Ah, you know. <laughs> I'm William Dafoe. Sorry about those racial cracks. Uh, I'm half a heap myself. Like, wow, that's that's a way of saying it. And gives all that out. Then also lets him know that it's bad luck to kill a seabird. And Perot's like, well, thank you for that advice. I'll I take that to heart. 
it's an important lesson, even when it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and Perot, he never kills a seabird. So, you know, he took that, uh, yeah. And so eventually, after all of these interviews and all of these revelations, uh, we have another scene of Perot looking at that little portrait. It's like, Atrine, I do not know what is happening here. I cannot see it. And it's he's actually using some lines, I believe, that come from the very last Hercule Perot novel, Curtains where I don't know the context for, but it is Hercule basically saying, I don't know what's going on. This is very strange to me because that never happens in the book. Book Poirot, he just gets it, man. He works it out. He sits and thinks. There is literally a chapter in the book called Hercule Poirot sits and thinks. (laughs) It's because he is the greatest detective. I am the greatest detective in the world. And uh, everyone is, has to head out and get off the train because they're about to put the train back on the tracks. And it's dangerous for people to be on the train while that's happening. And what's interesting is that everyone goes to the tunnel to sit on a table. And we have a very deliberate shot of all of the passengers that we've seen so far sitting at this table looking a lot like Da Vinci's The Last Supper. <laughs> that painting of you know Jesus and his disciples sitting down. Old Testament meets New Testament. Meets New Testament. But what's interesting is that there's an empty chair. And in this shot that is meant to mimic the painting, there's an empty chair there. And in the painting, that chair is where Judas sits. And who's sitting there in this movie? No one. Oh, so there is no Judas. (laughs) It's like, I... I don't know if they mentioned that in the commentary, but I feel like that was a very deliberate little tableau they set up. I can't remember if they mentioned the chair specifically, but they did sort of mention that they go from this Last Supper looking spread into as his speech progresses, they become more kind of like a a jury sort of vibe. Like it becomes a little bit more trial due process or whatever in its vibes than the Last Supper, particularly when she takes or when Michelle Pfeiffer takes off her wig. But... Mm. Before she takes off her wig. Perot is going to give a speech. And oh, it's, does he give a speech? It's a proper Agatha Christie speech of let's all sit down and I'm going to explain all of this to you. Now, I'll tell you right now in the book, this is a big section. This goes on for fucking ever in the book. And in other film versions that I watched, same goddamn thing. It just, Perot just keeps talking and talking and explaining every person's connection to the Armstrong family for what feels like goddamn hours. Yeah, and so the first time I watched this movie, this monologue, this whole scene felt very long because it does feel like it's a third of the movie. Because we're getting so much information. Monologue. Yeah. And I'm blaming Kenny B here, where I'm like, (laughs) clearly... Kenny B, he's starring in this, he's directing it. Like, of course, he's going to ham up this monologue. All the goodwill that you had built up with Frankenstein, gone, sir, gone. No, I mean, I I enjoy a good ham and cheese sandwich narcissist. <laughs> like, I'm pro Kenny B and his <laughs> extravagant ways. Fan of William Shatner, fan of Kenny B, fan of myself, really. Someone like, it's a, there's a list. But the... <laughs> Vibes here that I was getting from Michael Green when watching the commentary was just how condensed this really was. Because he was so proud of himself that he was like, he mentioned it. I was so proud of myself that I was able to initially cut this speech that feels like 
50 pages in the novel down to 12. I'll say it. I mean, that pride is earned because, yeah, this is... It feels like a third of the book is just this explanation of how everyone was connected to the Armstrong case, and thus, you all did it. Everyone killed this guy. Yeah, and then him and Kenny B apparently edited it down even further. So this is actually the super abridged version (laughs) (laughs) of this speech, which is kind of incredible to think about. And a lot of it is still saying some of the things repeatedly. He's coming back to some motifs, Mm -hmm. which is that little Hercule Poirot, this entire time, he's lived by a code because every man's got to have a code. And Hercule Poirot, his code was, there is right, there is wrong, there is nothing in between. And so... That's been working great for him so far. Yeah. But not this case. Because in this case, he's realizing it's a bunch of wounded, vulnerable, hurting people who thought that their only sense of peace, that they could possibly reach some closure and move on from here to live their lives, was to do what the justice system had failed to do. And that is to punish Cassetti for his heinous baby napping killing crimes. And so they had planned this whole thing. And it was perfect if Hercule Perot hadn't shown up. Would have gone according to plan if it wasn't for you crazy kids. <laughs> yeah, like Michelle Pfeiffer takes off her wig. It's like taking off the mask and takes off the wig. And I wouldn't have gotten away with it if it weren't for you crazy Belgian. Yeah. And here, Hercule Perot, he's like, I just wanted a vacation, so you really should have picked another train. But <laughs> this is the course that fate has allotted them. So now they must come together and deal with what's going to happen here. Because Perot's like, I don't think these are bad guys. Like, I get it. But there's a system to the universe, and I don't understand the paradigm here, and I've never not understood the paradigm. So he's having a crisis of paradigm faith, and he's going to test one more time to see if they will succumb to the paradigm he knows of just everyone can be put into these boxes. So he puts down his gun in front of Michelle Pfeiffer, who has already admitted, it was all my plan, like, let the others go, I am already dead inside anyway. So he puts the gun, he's like, if you want to keep the secret, you're going to have to kill me. Or if you want to keep the secret, you're going to have to kill me. <laughs> you will give my body to the lake. Book can lie, I cannot. Yes, book can lie, I cannot. <laughs> and so she picks up the gun. She reaches for that gun. And you think, oh shit, she's going to shoot Pierrot. But no, then she lifts it to her own throat really dramatically and says, I died with Daisy and pulls the trigger, which would have been Badass final words, but yeah. the gun isn't loaded. So yeah. she's like, Flip. okay, well, now I kind of feel like a chump, but whatever. Props to Michelle Pfeiffer, because she is bringing it in this scene. Like, she's acting her ass off. She is. Piero realizes, okay, it was going to be easier if you guys had reached for that gun and tried to kill me. Because I'd be like, <laughs> yes, you are murderers in your heart, but they are not murderers. They are but wounded people. And so he has to amend his paradigm, you see, to there is right, there is wrong. And then there is you. (laughs) You're like, oh, shit. True themes. Hashtag Uh, true themes. He doesn't know what to do with the you in this sentence. You being Michelle Pfeiffer and you being the entire final supper table. And Mm -hmm. anybody else who might come to that New Testament ideology of not so Old Testament black and white ideology. Ah. Really still New Testament also has some 
pretty damning morality well, structures, but you know, yeah. whatever, like metaphors. Okay? Broad strokes, broad strokes here. Come on. <laughs> broad <now>. strokes, yeah. <laughs> this whole thing with the gun and that business is yeah, not in the book. Again, I side with this movie a lot and its changes. I will side here as well. This is a very wonderful change. I'm very glad they did this because Book Perot, like I said, this goddamn speech goes on for fucking ever. And after a while, you begin to think to yourself, Perot doesn't even matter at this point because at the start he says, okay, there's two solutions to this. One is that Ratchet had some enemies. They got in the train. They killed him and escaped. And in the movie and in the book, you know, Munchio book, he says like, well, that's bullshit. No, how did this happen? How did this happen? And so then Perot has to go on and explain all this thing. So in the book, after he is done explaining all of this stuff, he then says, but I think I'm just going to tell the police the first explanation because that's simpler. So really, you're just left thinking, why the hell did you even bother explain all of that stuff? It feels like a thing where Perot is saying, it's important that you know that I know this. That's all that it is. I just thought of all of the options. I just I just want you guys to know I know what the fuck is going on. I'm the best detective of all time. There's no moral dilemma that book Poro I've inducted has. this, I've deducted this, I've mm. abducted this. <laughs> I've ducted every which way. Ducted every which way that I can. And yeah, I'm the best detective in the world, but I'm not gonna turn you in because that's a really complicated story I have to tell the police. So no, I don't want to do give the speech again. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. So really, the whole thing just becomes pointless. The way that they change it up here with Poirot, you know, having to work out what is between right and wrong. It's these guys. It's not something that's done for their benefit or for him to show off. It's him working through this moral conundrum that he's in. And I like that change in the the movie. One thing that's in the book in this scene that's not in the movie that I think was missed a little bit is that the book makes it a little bit more clear that the reason for all 13 of them to go in and do the stabbing is because, as Perot says in the book and in the movie, that they are not killers. Not a single one of them is a killer. Not any single one or even two of you could have done this. It had to be all of you. The book explains a really big reason they were doing that is because none of them wanted to know which stab was the fatal stab. If it's 13 people just going in and stabbing at the body really quickly and then backing off, letting the next person do it, there's no way to know where they killed him or at what point Ratchet slash Cassetti was killed off. So it's a group thing. No one of them can take the blame for it. And also no one of them can really know which one of them killed him, you know, in the actual act. I mean, that's fun, but it's like, sure, that's how the law works. Yeah. Your Honor, <laughs> I'm not guilty of these homicide charges, yeah. murder in the first degree, because I only stabbed him once. Right, you see? yeah. That may and have, it took at least 13. That, For all I know, that detail of we all did it so that no one person would know who was the who was the killer among the group of us, that may have been in some version of the speech in the movie, but was just trimmed down in editing. And really, I could understand that because they got this speech down really well, really succinctly for the source material that they're working with. So I can applaud them for missing a few things from the book that I thought were cool. No, I agree that is really cool, that kind of mentality. What they do, it seems, in the movie instead is, so while 
Perot is giving his speech, we do get flashbacks to the murder taking place. Yeah. So it's not just all Kenny B <laughs> doing his exposition monologue. And when they flash back, it is fun. And they bring this up in the commentary as well, The how much they loved the different choices that the different actors were making here. Because we see in their body language and in their facial expressions the different levels of commitment to sparkle motion that they have. <laughs> the different levels to sparkle murder motion Oh, nice. that some of them are taken up this dagger. So they're passing off the dagger. They have this really long dagger. It's a really cool, moody, not quite chiaroscuro shot, but it's black and white and it's got a lot of sharp shadows. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people in this tiny little compartment room and it's underlit, so it's kind of got that old school like Dracula Frankenstein feel too with a lot of the shadow <laughs> developments. And they're passing around this really wonderfully long looking knife that it seems like Brana might have stolen from like the globe prop department or something. <laughs> Each one is given little ratchet a stab, and some of them are stabbing softly, they're looking at him, but the stab is kind of a bitch stab. And some of them, they can't even look directly at the body, so they kind of turn away and just kind of blindly mm -hmm. just sort of jab at stuff. You can tell that some are just kind of poking in, some really get in there. And then we have Michelle Pfeiffer at the end who takes that final blow and she comes up and she gets right over his body and she just sinks that motherfucker right into his chest cavity. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, she's truly committed. And right. she did admit, yeah, I was I was on board. This was my plan, uh -huh. like wanted to do this. I was game. I was DTS, down to stab. <laughs> and she does. And yeah, so it's kind of fun to see the others that they like kind of wanted to be part of this ritual, but maybe just didn't have it in them to really like sink that shit in. And so, yeah, we get that, I guess, explored through the just different variants of the psyche of the characters and can tell that some of them, yeah, would not have had that in them if they were to go in solo. Mm -hmm. Like I think both the Barbital, Barbital Barbie and <laughs> Penelope Cruz like would not have had that in them because they mm -hmm. kind of turn away from the light bar assault like he he was all in <laughs> he was he was also dts and then mustache leslie odom jr was a little bit more like surgical with mm -hmm. it you know so yeah. they kind of all had their thing right but, they different yeah. ways of, uh, of going about so it was kind of fun and freaky or what have you mm-hmm Mm, yeah. And then they get into the train station because the track is clear. They've gotten all of these guys to come and shovel them out. They've been working on it while they've been sitting here having their exposition monologue final supper. They get back on the train and everyone is very somber. Some of them are playing cards. Some of them are just holding hands. But they know that they might be rolling slowly to their doom when they get to brood. Barbertol Barbie is pouring out her Barbertol. Yeah, apparently that is how you cure addiction, kids, is that you have to stab someone. And, you know, kind of get accused of it, but not really. So, yeah. Actually, that is not... <laughs> I feel like I should, like, asterisk disclaimer that I don't want a Fisher King situation uh, yeah. <laughs> on my hands. <laughs> don't cure your addiction oh, by murder. Oh. I mean, do it if you want to, but I'm not condoning it. Oh, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Good call, a faceless person speaking into a microphone. Yes, don't don't get a Fisher uh, King we need situation. The Fisher King. The Fisher King's so great. Uh, that's true. That's good. Excuse me. <laughs> 
Um, but they arrive at the station. Poirot uh, has this very somber moment when he is leaving, and he is kind of narrating a letter he is writing, I guess, in spirit to John Armstrong, who we are told earlier in the film wrote to Poirot to try and do something about this horrific case. But by the time Poirot could, everything bad had already happened. Armstrong had already killed himself. The wife had died from premature childbirth complications. So it was something that Poirot was upset. He could not give someone yeah, closure he'd on. he'd never been able to solve it because Guy didn't send a telegram. <laughs> Should have sent that goddamn telegram. That's a speedier way than like postal delivery. I, mean, I don't know what he was on, thinking. man. Jeez. But he, in spirit, writes a letter just saying, like, Mr. Armstrong, I can finally respond to you, and I hope that in some way, in some spirit, you can hear these words that I have finally solved this case or have found, I forget the exact words, but basically that. And as this narration is going on, there is this really long tracking shot that made me realize, oh, wow, all of these car set, these train car sets are all connected for realsies. Because yeah, he walks through like three different cars, like the sleeping car, the dining car, the like the caboose of the thing, walks through all of them in one continuous shot that does not look like it's, you know, shots stitched together or digitally composited. It looks like a very real thing. And it is so satisfying because it's like saying goodbye to the train, but also just letting us know like this is the space that we have been inhabiting and it is gorgeous. And we just got to take a moment to really linger yeah. on this amazing production build because the details are just all gorgeous. It has become a character in its own right, especially that back part of the train. So when he gets to the little seating area in the caboose with those gorgeous convex glass panels that are frosted mm. yeah. in the back oh. and the bar and everything sparkling. And I was like, I get that 19th century Yelp review that that one guy <laughs> left where it's like the dazzle of the decanters. And it's, it is gorgeous though. It needed its moment, but the train is somber now. And what's also really cool is how this tracking shot is set up is a deliberate mirror parallel to the tracking shot when Perro was boarding the train. Ah, so he true. initially boards the train. We're going to follow him. He's going to make his way down the train corridors, get settled in. We're going to explore that space a little bit. And at that time, the train is very lively. Everything has a lot of noise happening. People are saying hi to him. There are cooks in the kitchen that are setting things aflame on purpose because they're fancy like that. <laughs> but it also begs the question, where were these cooks and the other train staff during like the rest of this movie? Oh, because yeah. when Ratchet dies, there's an immediate suspect list and Book is immediately absolved from being a suspect because one, he is the best and he doesn't have time to murder people on trains because he's got better shit to do with his life being a hedonist. Two, he is the one that asks Perot, like, please help me solve this. One, right. because yeah. <laughs> nepotism's an art form and like, I don't do shit myself. Like, that's really important <laughs> to me. And also because... You're great, and if we don't solve it, they're just going to blame the easiest out, mm -hmm. and it'll probably 
be, you know, so-and-so because of the color of his skin or so-and-so because of his national identity. Right. He says it'll probably be Vasquez for because his name is Vasquez or it'll be Arvnot because of the color of his skin. So Yeah, because it's like, you know how racist nationalist everybody on this train is? Like, it's that's how that shit goes. dude. Come on. He's like, yeah, Perot's like, oh, like, yeah, okay, that's it right. It is 1934. Yes, I must do something. And that does immediately help also solidify kind of a protagonist angle to Perot and to book that like they are good people fundamentally mm-hmm. and they care right about that kind of justice and so we're not seeing that injustice happen or take place really right. i think they're less concerned about solving it or books less concerned about solving it and more concerned about not having the wrong people get blamed mm-hmm. so that becomes like an interesting motivational factor but yeah he is solidly set up as like he's the one person on this train other than the perot that's like safe from suspicion and so maybe one of the cooks didn't like Ratchet, right? Like, why are they not a suspect? Right. <laughs> like, maybe Ratchet insulted their gourmet dessert by sharing it. And mm. this perfectionist chef that has been driven to the brink of insanity and perfecting his, like, chocolate mousse torte or whatever just snaps and kills That'd be like the true twist is like we've not focused on these people at all. And by the way, one of them killed them. Maybe that's why we never see any of the staff or any of the passengers who just weren't on this first class car is that the movie never wants us to even think about them or have any suspicion of them. You know, check off suspect. If we see them, they must be a suspect because there's a goddamn murder that's just happened. Yeah, we did see them, though, cooking stuff at the beginning. Of- yeah, we did. <laughs> so I'm like, these people are aboard the train. So good detectives, they would consider all possible, whatever. So, yes, as a production decision to not include them, I get it. But detective-wise, those people should be on the list. But we just never see them again. We also get through the train right here, and they're not on it. But this train is continuing to go. So mm-hmm. where are the cooks? Like, everybody vanished. It's a ghost train. They're on break. Oh, my God ghost train they're on the other side of the train they're on the break room car i'm gonna go with ghost train (laughs) okay fair enough at the end of the day ghost train we'll say that and yeah so they're tracking through and it is really lively and loud and colorful at the beginning of the tracking shot now we have the mirrored inverse of this egress tracking shot where the train is quiet and somber and all of the color has just been sucked out of it it's very desaturated compared Mm -hmm. to what the onboarding shot was and he's going to leave the train because his world is grayer now figurative abuse of His world was black and white, right and wrong, and now it is gray. It is gray. Those shades of gray. And he finally tells them that the police, they believe his story, that a single person got on the train that did not like Ratchet, killed Ratchet, and got off the train, and that's all that there is to it. A masked assailant in the night. He has to now disembark the train, the Orient Express, to help the police work out the paperwork and all that, and and bids them adieu in hopes that they, going forward, may find peace. The amusing thing is that they buy the excuse that the audience was already set up for the audience. Like, no, it's got to be one of these people that are on the train because the masked assailant coming in from the snowy wasteland of the Alps. Mm-hmm. 
into the window <laughs> to kill him and then vanish on this mountainside is ridiculous. So clearly, like, we're stuck with a certain set of people. And then we get to the end and he tells the constables there, yeah, it was totally a masked assassin that just snuck in through the windows from the Alps, stabbed this bitch 13 times, and then bounced. Side note, also, I'm assuming it's just because of a production. There's probably a lot of reasons why they didn't have this, like ratings and just practicality of all of these actors not getting drenched. But there is a disturbing lack of blood splatter in this <laughs> crime scene and in this room, both like during the actual crime and then also in the flashback of them just all stabbing him like they mm -hmm. just stab him no blood squirts back at them right like this is a that's serious yeah. situation even if it's in black and white there would still be some sort of darker viscous fluid popping up or you know i do think clothing. they drugged him first so what yeah. this could either imply this lack of blood if we're gonna try to build it into the diegesis of the world sure why wouldn't is we? either that that drugging actually full on killed him first, which I do think we see his face of surprise when they go to stab him, yeah. so that's probably not it. But either they are stabbing a dead man, so the veins are not actively pumping to like squirt that much blood. There's still gonna be some splatter because sure, yeah. you you can do this experiment at home, kids, if you wanna take a knife and soak a sponge or something. Oh, I thought you were gonna say, you wanna take a knife and stab somebody. I'm like, London, I mean, you, you, you wanted to not too. do a Fisher King. <laughs> thing come but, on yeah. <laughs> fill you know like some sort of sponge or something and then just like stab it and pull it back real quick liquid is going to get on that knife it is going to sprinkle and splatter as you pull it back the vein won't squirt it but there will be some splatter uh but there will be a lot less so either there are he was already dead none of them killed him except for the one who poisoned him which would be the cook probably <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, my headcanon, this cook actually did kill him, and he was already dead by the time that they went and thought they were carrying out their master plan. Oh. So the cook is actually, like, 13 steps ahead of their 12 <laughs> steps ahead, because he's like, okay, I have figured out that this crew has come aboard this train to kill this dude. I'm going to do it first, and then they're all going to take the fall for the murder, because they're going to go in there and stab him. And they're novices. They're not going to realize that his blood is not, like, his arteries are not pumping. Well, okay, well, look, London Poirot, he's all about establishing a motive. What's the motive for the cook to kill Cassetti? Cassetti probably insulted his tort, and this cook <laughs> Nobody has gone insults through my tort. some sort of, like, Gordon Ramsay schooling of cooking and is cracked. <laughs> Cooks on gourmand trains is a high-pressure situation. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I feel or that. maybe that's what we need with the sequel is not actually what we're about to set up for the sequel, but the train continues, and that's when we learn that it was actually the cook all along because he's a, he's like a tort serial killer that keeps cooking these poisonous torts to see who he can get away with killing and having other people take the blame. So he's a master at sensing out when other people on the train are planning on killing one of the passengers, and that's when he strikes. And so other people always take the blame. And some point, somebody realizes a pattern that like, wait, these people all seem to already be dead. This is gold, man. And the cook is a ghost. <laughs> I can't say you're wrong. I cannot say you're wrong. But th speaking of the sequel that we are not setting up, there's actually a sequel that we are going to set up. Because Poirot, having said his goodbyes to the people he has apparently pardoned for stabbing a man to death, 
gets off of the train, heads down to the station, and a policeman is there. He says, oh, hi, are, are you the detective? Because uh, I've got to get this Poirot guy uh, down to Egypt, because there's been a murder on the Nile. Like, oh, what? You, <laughs> first of all, like, God damn, we have to, like, that's how big this is, like, that someone has to come find Poirot on this railroad in the middle of Europe and get him down to fucking Africa to work on a murder that's on the Nile? Holy crap. Yeah, because one, wasn't he already on his way back to London for a different case? Wasn't he already on a job? So how can they he just asked, Yeah, because Perot asked the guy, him. is this about the Kastner case, which is what he was called back to London for? We never get any more details in that Kastner case, like whatever that was, just some brief mention at the very beginning uh, where when Perot is getting that telegram from the guy, he says there have been some developments in the Kastner case, things I was right about. Oh, yes, sir, that's what. So that's why he has to go back to London. But now, apparently, there's been some sort of murder on the Nile that's more important than that. We've got to go deal with that first before we can go back to London and deal with this Kastner case. Yeah, so I guess Kastner case, not time sensitive, and he's just going to shelve that for a little while. I guess so, but... I don't know, we're just going to forget about that. Also, I am kind of impressed with... The deductive skills of whatever weird little ant colony army of just civil servants that show up to like tell him about things. Like there's like some sort of weird background network of these little dudes in suits that just know where Perot is at all times. Yeah. That's kind of creepy and fun in its own weird way. I know, like what what is Perot doing to let them you know, there's no, uh, you know, Twin Peaks style, like, Diane, I have to record this thing and send this tape into the FBI offices. Like, they're not doing that. So this, maybe Perot sends out a correspondence to the home office or something. I don't know what that home office would be, if it's Scotland Yard or Interpol. I mean, in the book. I don't know, because he's also Belgian. I was going to, I meant to look up the international policing politics. Like, when did Interpol become a thing? Oh, I... Let me, let's just do a quick, like, little Wikipedia type, like, let's see. If I go to Wikipedia and I type in Interpol, and I don't mean to ban, uh, there, Interpol. Interpol International Police, blah, 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 First formed September 1923. Okay, so there is, like, an international okay. policing force. Yeah, I don't know that Interpol's ever mentioned in the... Agatha Christie's novels. Well, no, because I don't think he's an Interpol agent. He no, seems to be a yeah. freelance detective, and I don't know what the legal requirements were to hire freelance consultants for international <laughs> crimes. I don't think he'd have a lot of jurisdiction in Not... Egypt, is all I'm saying. But Suffice to say, they keep tabs on this guy, wherever he might be. They knew he was on the Orient Express at some point, and send out the telegrams like, get our guys in Broad or wherever this, like, was it, B-R-O-D, Broad? Yeah. Broad, yeah. Brood, broad, Brood. Yeah, that's. It's former Yugoslavia. It's a city in former Yugoslavia. Get our guy in the former Yugoslavia that's now the current Yugoslavia and get him to stop Perot. Well, we there gotta, is no current Yugoslavia. I mean, that, in the context of this movie. Okay. All right. All right, Kate. Jeez. Um, <laughs> get the continue and get him down to the Nile because there's been a death on the Nile. And guess what the name of another Agatha Christie Poirot novel is? Could it possibly be murder on the Nile? No, it's death on the Nile. Well, there we go. Yes. And 
guess what? Kenneth Branagh, well, you know what? This movie did pretty good. And so everyone said, hey, we'd like to see a little bit more of this. And Kenneth Branagh said, yeah, okay, sounds great. I'm going to make Death in the Nile starring Wonder Woman, I guess. Yeah. I know nothing about it. The movie is on the way, but it's been delayed so goddamn much. It was filmed, I think, in 2019, was going to be released in 2020. 2020, not a good year to release big movies. So they had to delay that. And from what I understand, there's a little bit more delay right now because one of the main characters is played by Army Hammer. And as we discussed in our Nocturnal Animals episode, Army Hammer, he's got a little bit of baggage right now because one cannibalism or, you know, cannibalism fetish. Which, if consensual, fuck yeah, all the power to you cannibal fetishes out there. If consensual, have a, have a grand old tasty time, all good. However, the non-consensual aspects are the problem, and those being that he may have been very abusive to one of his partners. Yeah, the politics of whether or not, or like what to do in situations where people involved with a project become problematic is a much larger topic. It is unfortunate when there's an entire cast and crew. Like, it takes a lot of people to make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. I don't know. Refilm his scenes with Tig Notaro and you're off and I guess running. it depends on how much of the movie he's in. That yeah. might be real hard to do. But, know. yeah, no, I think right now it's slated to come out in February of 2022 is its current release date. Mm-hmm. The trailer I saw was, like, coming in October 2020. And I was like, that's not true. <laughs> what? But no. the trailer just came so quietly because I remember the Murder on the Orient Express trailers just being a big thing. Like, they made the circulation. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, I was looking up other stuff about this movie and it was like, do you want to watch the Death on the Nile trailer? And I was like, wait, there, there is one of those already? <laughs> like, when did that happen? And so, yeah, that's when I learned about that. It looks like it's going to be as gorgeously produced and designed yeah. as... This first one, the poster art is very similar. Final note about this final scene as well is that this is another set that was built. And Uh, so we are on a physically moving train on some tracks. They did build this little train station and it's gorgeous. The tracking shot with the crane is insane and incredible. They had to rehearse the tracking movement because it is an unbroken tracking shot from an inside of a train car coming out of a train car having the actor descend downstairs turn a 90 degree angle and then walk through the snow and this camera that is on a crane and a very custom made little platform with a bunch of people there's actually some behind the scenes footage watching the people finagle this custom made little like cage that the camera dude is in that are like kind of help pulling him and then pushing him and then pushing him again and they rehearse this again and again and again to get this like smooth tracking shot that's just going through some really tricky very constrained angles and then going out to like the larger Mm. sort of frame outside and we are back outside in the desolate snow and it's very isolating and the landscape is back to being very wide and very epic from the small condensed thing of the train and then they also keep craning so (laughs) this crane starts moving backwards as the train starts moving forwards and it's this polar opposite motion Mm. very slowly as the train fades off into the sunset on its way along the railway that is known as the Orient Express. <laughs> so, and that's yeah, epic. 
of the Orient Express upon which there was a murder. The murder on the Orient Express. And they all did it. Spoiler! They all did it. So, <sighs> speaking of all these people, top five? Top five! My honorable mention's gonna go to the maker of the most important prop in this movie, the moustache, as we said. It's not a mustache, definitely not a stash. This is a moustache. And the movie really doesn't work unless this gigantic facial furniture is on K Brand's face throughout this movie. So thank Thank you, you. moustache maker. You made the moustache, and you, in in turn, made this movie. Your honorable mentions. My honorable mention goes out to the location scouts on this, and the people who went and gathered all of the footage for those LED screens. Beautiful stuff to look at in this movie. Who is your number five? My number five goes out to the supporting cast slash the murderers. Just all the people who were playing the people who got very stabby. Not really a weak link in the whole bunch from Michelle Pfeiffer to Aaron Burr. I'm blanking on his name. Leslie Odom Jr. That's right. Yes. Daisy Ridley. We're to see Daisy Ridley not in a Star Wars movie being all Star Wars-y. Yeah. But yeah, whole cast. Like him. Good job. You're number five. My number five is also the cast, actually. It's weird you would think of this as a very actor-heavy movie. It's by Kenneth Branagh. It stars a whole bunch of known names. And yet, yeah, the technicalities on this film actually are even more incredible to me. So, actors getting mentioned here at number five. Perplexing as it is astounding. Mm Mm-hmm. My number four goes to the character of Book. I mean, the actor himself is good, don't get me wrong. Just this character. I fucking love how... Just what an unapologetic, rich snob this guy is. He has all the great qualities that I I love in characters like this in films. I want more of this guy. And apparently, this guy shows up in the next movie, so... What? He does. Hells to the yeah. I'm all for it. You're number four. Okay, I'm really excited to hear that he's in the next movie. I did not know that because, and this might be a really quick upshot here for top five, because my number four, also Book, because he stands above the rest of the cast, because, my God, is he fantastic. Life goals, that's all I'm saying. Right on. My number three goes out to the writer, Michael Green. I think he did a really good job of translating a weirdly methodical book, murder mystery book, into a fun movie with a plot that flows a lot better than the strangely pragmatic chapters that are found in the original source novel. Not that the original source novel is bad, but had it been a very straightforward adaptation, this would have been a very boring movie. So thank you, Michael Green. You're number three. Lay it on me. Okay, this is getting freaky because, yeah, number three, Michael Green. Huh? Because, right. same, he okay. adapted this thing well. He didn't take it too far over the top, and he got in a lot of classic Perot references. So, nicely done all around. Yeah, we, we probably have the same top five. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. I have to think it's just a coincidence or it's 
<clears throat> entirely just a clear-cut, obvious thing and not that we're beginning to think alike because I refuse to consider that possible. No, never. My number two goes out to the man that that moustache was attached to, director and star K. Bran, Kenneth Branagh, for bringing Hercule Poirot to life in such a fun and delightful manner. And, you know, for directing the film, too, that I'm sure deserves something. Your number two. Uh, Kenny B, our boy Kenny B. I have it written down. This list is exactly the same, and uh, it was it was pre-written down, so there's nothing I can do about it now. Stranger and Stranger. My number one is a combination of the production design and cinematography of this movie. Both of these things coming together, just the glorious opulence of the Orient Express combined with this beautiful 65mm photography. God damn, this movie is just endlessly gorgeous to look at. You could not care about the plot whatsoever. You couldn't, you can just watch this movie not hearing a goddamn thing. And every moment of it, it's still so beautiful. And goddamn, I want more of that. So let's hurry up and get that sequel out, for God's sakes. I, I assume the sequel is going to look as good. I don't know. We'll see. Tell me about your number one for this movie. Um, my number one is the same as your goddamn number one. Like, not even, <laughs> not even just one of your number ones. Look at my goddamn list. It says production slash cinematography and i hate you but i do love the production and the cinematography on this movie it is a fascinating combination especially those practical bases with the cgi augmenting it as well as just the camera work augmenting it the lighting augmenting it there's just so much texture there's so much stuff on this film and it's one of those films where you watch it and you might just take advantage of all of the little things that are on this beautiful celluloid in front of you. But if you're the kind of person who really likes to see how many departments it takes to make a movie, this is one of those films that you watch it and you're like, there are a lot of people <laughs> involved in mm -hmm. movie making and every yeah, department yeah. kind of just brings it, but it culminates on the production. And so the costuming here, I'm kind of including in the production and the hairstyling for that mustache, the train, the interior of the train, uh, the gorgeous leathers and materials that were even used to decorate the train, the glasswork in these train windows, like it's all just gorgeous. So. Yeah, I would have to say that I think this is our first time that we've had exactly identical top fives. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's just because, yeah, the hierarchy is clear here. Fantastic. Well, that wraps it up for us here now. As always, folks, when you come to see us and you come to listen to us, remember, if you want to talk to us, if you want to have something to say, please get at us. We are on Twitter at Cinema of Cruelty. We're on Instagram at Cinema of Cruelty. If I can ever figure out how the hell TikTok works, yeah, don't hold your breath on that one. And then come see us on Reddit for the Cinema of Cruelty subreddit. Yes, but for now, our journey has come to an end. It was an opulent journey full of visceral and tactile pleasures. A time of a former age when train travel was the promise of a transnational future for the restless elite. But those days are gone now, resigned to quainter times. 
So now, as we say forward out here, I suppose when we plan our group murders on systems of mass transport, we're gonna have to try out air travel. Safely. Istanbul, Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Istanbul. New Amsterdam Why they changed it I can't say You just liked it better that way Istanbul is Constantinople Now it's Istanbul and Constantinople Been a long time gone Constantinople Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Istanbul. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space.